Jess Dunn, Alex Towers, my dear Andrew Quinn, welcome to the 250. Welcome to the 250. I'm your podcast host, Darren Winnie, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm very good, Darren. You quickly lost your Scottish accent, just <laughs> just like Richard <laughs> Hammond. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, very much stayed in character in that. Did I have a Scottish accent? No, no, I don't think so. I did, like, it, it was funny in the, in, in the movie. I feel like in the Montana scene, <laughs> he's, he's, he's really laying it on. And then he just forgets that he's Scottish, like later <laughs> until he gets to eating the ice cream. Um, which I think <laughs> right. It's too serious, Andrew. It's a very serious situation. <laughs> yeah, you can't. You can't be. Yeah, you can't. If it, when things get serious, you have to ditch your Scottish accent. I, that's, that's, I love the idea that actors only have so much bandwidth in terms of like managing a reaction to a scene. So it's like <laughs> I can give you a reaction to a green tennis ball, or I can do a Scottish accent. Maybe that's why kind of Christopher Nolan works with Kenneth Branagh so often because like Branagh's very good at accents and he doesn't want to distract him with non-practical effects my my Irish accent completely drops whenever there's like a moment of drama um, so uh, uh, well it's yeah. like with Colin Farrell you can only either get him to do an accent or act and you gotta choose one uh, perfect so yes this week we're discussing a fantastic movie on the list one of our perennial favourites a film that we've been meaning to get to for quite a while which is Steven Spielberg's 1993 Jurassic Park and joining us for that discussion we have two fantastic guests uh, you've already heard the wonderful Jess Dunn how are you Jess? I'm good Ah, cool. Fantastic. And we also have the sensational Alex Towers. How are you? Not too bad. Happy to be here talking about this film. Perfect. So I think that basically when we've had the two of you on individually before, both of you have suggested that you are big, big fans of Jurassic Park. Um, So maybe, Jess, do you remember the first time that you saw Jurassic Park and kind of what your memories of it were and kind of, is it your favorite Steven Spielberg movie? Yes, so it definitely is. Um, I was very, very young. In fact, I didn't exist actually when the film came out. So I remember the first time that I watched it, my Nana had it on VHS and she put it on and I don't think she really remembered what it was and then there's obviously like a death scene quite early on and uh she couldn't turn it off I was too I was really really invested in it I loved Spielberg from being like a child like I'd already seen Jaws the cat was out of the bag it was too late so uh yeah but she really and my parents came in I think around the Mr Arnold scene with the arm and they were like what is going on here (laughs) um so very fond memories of that I I think that's fine though like I think it's still it's like an adventure film it's not really a monster film it's not the same as Jaws it's not as kind of graphic and stuff it's not as scary for children it's more kind of you know like it's exciting kind of romp thing which you don't really get anymore and I think it's Every kid remembers the first film like that, that they got to see that they shouldn't maybe have been watching. And, uh, you know, it's a really formative experience. So, yeah, I like it a lot. Perfect. And actually, a couple of things to go back to there and what you mentioned, because I think Spielberg has talked about how what drew him to make Jurassic Park, um, outside of the fact that apparently Universal bought the rights and were like, you're making this movie if you want to make Schindler's List. But what apparently drew Spielberg to like... Were they like it's um it's either this or Congo? <laughs> um, 
We'll get to Congo later. I have a whole section of notes about Congo. Oh, really? It's, it's, <laughs> okay. it's this or disclosure. Rising sun, Spielberg. Rising sun. Um, wow, Michael Crichton had quite the career, didn't he? But no, it was. Uh, he also said that what he wanted to do is he wanted to make a true sequel to Jaws, actually. is kind of what drew him to making this. Because obviously Jaws had had a string of sequels, several of which are on the bottom 100, actually. And we will eventually get round to. Another thing that kind of Jess brought up there, there which is the idea of... Uh, films that are maybe a little bit inappropriate for kids. Because, again, I don't know if the rest of us are kind of old enough to remember this when it came out. But Jurassic Park was apparently hugely controversial uh, when it was released. It caused quite a bit of moral panic. It caused quite a bit of concern. There were articles written about whether or not it was appropriate to take kids to go see it. The McDonald's Happy Meal was a source of controversy because apparently it encouraged kid the parents to take seven-year-old kids to see it and have nightmares. The studio had to put out statements saying, no, no, no. And this is actually a quote from the, the head of the MPA. We think the movie is completely inappropriate for a seven-year-old. An eight-year-old should be able to handle it, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's the cutoff point for it. But I kind I of love reminds. <laughs> They have a little barometer or test. Yeah, we, it's tough when you have problem. kids in the film because people will see and kind of go, "Oh, I can bring my kid. My kid looks like that kid." That <laughs> was that was the problem they had with RoboCop too. Obligatory RoboCop reference was the the the, the problem that like um, I think Roger <laughs> Ebert had was that there was a kid was like the main character in it, and they felt like this is just a ploy to get kids into the cinema because there were so many uh, RoboCop toys. Um, but they, 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 like they, it is true that seven-year-olds are little babies, but eight-year-olds um, <laughs> are just like little adults, miniature exactly. adults, isn't that how one They're, of the characters yeah, described eight, them? Like the the kid in RoboCop two was was eight years of age and was just a miniature <laughs> adult, basically. Yeah, he was he was a crime boss. Um, um. And of course, that's why we have, you know, you got PG and then you've got eight oh and plus. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the ranking system that we have. And I mean, it, it is worth noting that it arrived. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say just in terms of that, because like Jurassic Park was one of the last movies to arrive in that wave of movies. Because if you remember the year before or two years before, there was Batman Returns, which was very famously a movie that had all sorts of McDonald's tie-ins. And then parents took it to see it. And there were sequences of Danny DeVito saying just the pussy I've been looking for while vomiting bug blood in a giant baby outfit while threatening to drown all of the children of Gotham City. So I kind of like... I, I think Jess kind of has something there when she says there's something joyous about watching those movies that are technically child-friendly, but are in no way actually child-friendly. It kind of scare you a little bit. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think I was let watch this. Like, the 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 thing about um, these sorts of movies and even television shows is that you don't need to watch them in order to buy the toys. You just need to kind of be aware <laughs> of them. And I, I, I think I think that that's as far as it kind of went for me, because like there was obviously the cool eight year olds who, who had seen the movie. But if you wanted to kind of, you know, fit in with them, you would have the merchandise and you'd be like, yeah, I've seen the movie. Sips from <laughs> Jurassic Park. Cup. It's <laughs> like, how would I have this if I didn't? If I wasn't um, aware of this. Yeah. Uh, yes. And so, the, our, our other guest is, is Alex Towers. Alex, do you remember the first time you saw Jurassic Park? I do. Um, and it's funny you kind of mentioned that about, you know, this having such a, a big effect when it came out, because um, I I was, yeah, probably the exact child the MPA were trying to protect. Because when I was I, I was living in, in Toronto at the time and, and I was three years old, about to turn four. And 
you know, my soft child brain didn't fully process that Jurassic Park was a movie. You know, the, the branding was just everywhere. You went to McDonald's and there were toys and the posters weren't like, they didn't show actors or anything. The posters looked like a poster for a theme park. And, the, you know, there were theme parks in, in Toronto and stuff. And this was also the time where I was just obsessed with dinosaurs and had learned, you know, I could say the word triceratops, but apparently didn't have the brain function to work out that this was a fake Hollywood movie <laughs> and not a... No, that, you know, I thought it was real. So the the timing of this was also poor because my, my dad went on a business trip to Chicago for like a week and came back and I and said he'd been to Jurassic Park. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, like, <laughs> was getting him to like explain details, but still processing, you know, wait, what do you mean? You know, there were other kids there. Like, why didn't you bring me? And then, um, you know, eventually probably asking a question like, what was it like on the helicopter? And him being like. Actually, I'm going to have to, you know, go back and <laughs> reassess that there. So I, I, you know, I had, I remember I collected like Cheerios box tops to get a poster, kind of like what Andrew was saying before I saw this film and was obsessed with it, you know, and obsessed with the toys and I was obsessed with dinosaurs. So the whole thing really went well together. And then one day at a, a birthday party, um, this like spoiled kid's house I was at was just like, oh yeah, I have Jurassic Park and VHS. And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> and he hit play and every other kid went off into the back garden to like play together. And I just sat there like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, and watched the whole thing. And I, I, I know this is the film that I have seen the most since then. You know, it, it's kind of the alpha text for me for like film and why, you know, and really getting swept away. And I think we'll get to it later when, when you talk about like what it's really about and everything, but the way it's structured is is like so to like bring you into this this world and really actually kind of excite you and like blow you away and all the, the things that i love about films where you get like really enveloped into something and you get really swept up in the story jurassic park seems almost like purposely structured to evoke that and yeah i've it's it's been like a minor obsession my brother and i are, are both obsessed with it we get each other like jurassic park gifts every year including one year a signed sam neill um print from the movie so i wow. again will be defending wow. sam neill if anyone <laughs> <anything to say. laughs> well i i can't imagine anyone would have anything not nice to say although darren does have a part of the show where he goes into kind of bad things that people have had to say online about um, about stars of the movie, <laughs> it's kind of like yeah about that. It, yeah, he 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 has a. Uh, is it like a pig that he does yoga with, <laughs> and the pig does yoga too, and he's just a, he does have a, pe a pet pig. She's got big teeth. Yeah, he's great. He's one of the stars yeah. of lockdown. No, Andrew. He's my favorite on Instagram. My favorite. Person. He's just bizarre. Um, and to, okay, Andrew. To be clear. I felt like I maybe had to bring up genocide in Eastern Europe when talking about that particular filmmaker. And I apologize for that. But I assure you <laughs> no, that no. as far as I am aware, nobody who worked on Jurassic Park has been involved in or complicit with or caught up in the culture around genocide in Eastern Europe. That says, we know crossing of. It's that we know of yet. Yes. Um, yeah. So so I can, I can safely say you don't have that to look forward in the second half of the podcast. But Alex, what about yourself in terms of Spielberg films? Is this your favorite Spielberg film? Yeah, you know, I, I think this is, as I say, this is kind of the alpha text. So for me, everything else came after this, you know, in, for every film. So Spielberg, it's always going to be like, and I think finding other films that were sort of, you know, imbued in my childhood memory and DNA, like the Indiana Jones is like, they, they're always going to be very special. But um, yeah, I just, you know, I'm I'm actually not a massive Spielberg fan. You know, I'm, I, I absolutely think, you know, he's made some incredible films, but um yeah, I kind of think this is 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 really up there, and I 
I just don't have as much time for some of the, the later ones, even like the really technically accomplished ones. I, I just think he brings that nearly mawkish sentimentality into some stuff a little bit too much. But this, you know, incredible. And everything kind of exists for me in the shadow of this in terms of, of Spielberg. Um, and Andrew, what about yourself? I know you mentioned having the merchandise, sipping from the Jurassic Park branded cup, well, yeah, presenting I, yourself as a cool eight-year-old. When do, do you remember the first time you saw it? I do not. I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I do. I mean, I, I imagine it would have been on telly, um, but I, 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 I certainly don't think I would have been able to see it in the cinema. Um, but it was, it was huge. Um, I think Dublin Zoo was almost kind of take taken over. They they killed all the animals and threw them out so that they could just make it like a a, a Jurassic Park themed kind of exhibit. Um, they had these um, these. My favorite toy was like the reversible uh, plush dinosaur. So where it would be an a yellow egg, and you would kind of tear open the Velcro. And and push out like a a a dinosaur, which is great. Life finds a way, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like um and and it it was like the first few times you do it, there would be like a whole lot of blood and mucus and stuff, but, mm-hmm. but then it was fine. Um, yeah. Toy not suitable for under eight year olds. <laughs> yeah, <apparently>. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like most. Things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, Actually, I have, I have to admit, when doing Jurassic Park, when doing research on Jurassic Park, I'm amazed at kind of its cultural reach even beyond merchandise and TV shows and, and not merchandise oh, and kind of film franchise. Like it's not, it, it's massive. It's so yeah. mimetic, and it's not just it's not just toys and theme parks because this <laughs> is like I think we we've, we've spoken about other movies, especially kids movies. Which this isn't. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like it isn't, even though it's it's. Yeah, I suppose it's for that market. It's for it's for children of bad parents. Latchkey kids, yeah, exactly. Spielberg yeah. kids, basically. Um, yeah, but like, yeah, because I was doing research on this, and it's like there are so many headlines are from, and again, you can tell it's from people who grew up watching Jurassic Park who are like proposing the science behind these headlines as well, and you can tell that it's like. Uh, scientists proposed Jurassic Park, but for woolly mammoths, was a headline in 2014. National Geographic had a similar headline. New York Times wanted to say the mammoth cometh, but they also said mammoth park was their subheadline as well. In 2011, NASA, which was complaining at the time about the pseudoscience of the core, 2012, and Armageddon, wanted to make absolutely clear that the science of Jurassic Park was scientifically plausible, which I kind of adore as well. Um, but I get that, like the level of kind of cultural impact that kind of Jurassic Park has had, which is kind of is plausible though, right? Isn't it? <laughs> like we're yeah. looking at it, it's 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 kind of yeah, cloning is a thing. <laughs> we do that, um, you know. We we do, like if it, presumably if we did have the DNA. Yeah, I think uh, it falls down on the the getting the DNA part and, yeah. and just sticking a load of frog DNA in there, but, in the gaps, and hoping that it yeah. works. It's a too... good explanation for it. Yeah. Like I, I quite like that bit. I, I think it's a really good bit of um exposition that's like you know, you always hear show don't tell, but that's very much tell, but you can take it because it's funny and it's you know I think that yeah. makes you think it's a kid's film and then it, as it goes along you're like, oh no, it's no it isn't. 
Well, apparently that was a big issue because if you've read that the book is a doorstopper and the book is a Crichton book, which means that he was a former journalist and it's full of people expositing to one another nonstop, including while being chased by dinosaurs. Yeah, it's shocking how they just immediately go into like science talk whilst being like chased down a river in a raft. And you're like, well, the self-similar fractal curves of this. And you're like, what is... (laughs) It's funny because I remember seeing and reading that like... They got Michael Crichton, obviously, because the part of the deal was he gets to write the screenplay. But then, obviously, it's like now nah, we've got the like the nerd one. Time to bring in David Colep and write some zingers in there and <laughs> turn it into an actual movie. Yeah. No. No. I love that they just leave Malcolm though. Like he can just continue to kind of philosophize, and that's fine. And the rest of the characters are like full humans. <laughs> what I mean, it, it that, like that was the thing with the with the video clip was that was Spielberg's solution to it. It's like you get two solid minutes of exposition. How much can we cram in there? And of course, being Spielberg, he's like, I wanted to look like a Frank Capra produced documentary from the 1930s because kids love those, right? That's what kids are into. Um, I even love the like things that they're all like they're not just in a chair. There's like bars on the chair, so it's like, no, 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 you're not going anywhere. We're explaining exactly how this works. You know. Yeah. Um, my, my, again, we won't delve too too quickly on this, but I, one of my favorite kind of fan theories about Jurassic Park is that it's all a hustle. There are no actual dinosaurs in Jurassic Park for the reason that Alex specified, which is that there's no way that like you could have a mosquito that feeds on dinosaurs, but no mosquito is going to feed exclusively on one individual species of dinosaur. Also, blood doesn't work like that. Also, DNA doesn't work like that. So the crazy fan theory is that Hammond basically cooked up these fake creatures genetically he just grew them in a lab and is calling them dinosaurs so it's like the flea circus yeah yeah exactly. i mean that's that's in the book because like in the book they do a bit of hammond background and he, he carries around for like board investor meetings a tiny little reproduction elephant which is like so small and he like reveals it and then everyone goes like oh my god and gives him money but it's revealed that like he didn't create that dinosaur through cloning just like inbreeding until he got like a sick <laughs> elephant that was like born sufficiently small and then he just used that to like trick people so like a lot of there's a lot of darker stuff in the book about like yeah it all just being like you know for show and facade and everything yeah well probably i'd love to be in that business <laughs> <laughs> doesn't come across in zoom as well yeah you can't do that in zoom in the same way yeah it's like and we were about to have lunch. <laughs> you just take this sick elephant out of your box. I also love the idea that nobody search him on the way into the meeting. Um, no, yeah. <laughs> he, he's been. This is pre nine eleven. He's been feeding from the salad tray into his box all all, all during the meeting to this point. But it's um, like think of the toys. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, yeah, I suspect that a large portion of the podcast is going to be given over to Hammond and whether or not he's a nice a nice old man or something. Far Far, far darker and weirder. But before- I, 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 well, I won't reveal yet, but I, 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 I may, um, I may come down on one side <laughs> and you'll, you'll, you'll realize why. Um, all right then. Okay. So before we jump into the spore zone, three questions to get us started. So, um, Alex, do you think that Jurassic Park belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yeah, pretty comprehensively. I know I've been on these podcasts before and maybe it's because of the <laughs> hype of film I often talk about I'm always a little like but it is kind of horrible so maybe not but no this one is is like a full absolute endorsement for one of the you know 250 greatest films of all time I think it's such a I think people often get this are particularly in film circles very dismissive of blockbusters and films that are exciting or films that are kind of simple and big and colorful and have lots of effects and I, I think especially nowadays where every second film well not anymore but films that you know the big sort of 
releases tend to be so over the top in terms of effects and everything like this. This is such a a wonderful representation of so many things, and it, it's so like tightly paced and and even like things like special effects. It was such a watershed moment for all these kind of things, and I, I think it arrived at like the absolute perfect time, and so it does hold up. Um, and so for all those reasons alone, I think it definitely deserves to be included in the top 250 films of all time. But then, you know, what we were even just talking about, like, is it a kid's film? Is it a film for adults? I, I do kind of think it's both, you know, it's a, a film I watched when I was eight and was like, why are these guys talking around Chilean sea bass? I want to get to the dinosaurs. And now I watch and I'm like, I kind of wish they'd have more Chilean sea bass debates and then we can get back to the dinosaurs. Cause it is, you know, it's, it's that perfect mix of like, you know, a really interesting sort of pseudoscience, but done really well, just just done well enough so you don't think too much about it. And then also getting the impression that you're not really seeing everything that's going on and you're kind of being managed. But even the idea of you're watching them like get on a ride, you know, and they're riding around. And that's kind of what you feel as the audience, that you're experiencing it with them. And then little things like Spielberg making sure, you know, Spielberg's classic thing of like incorporating a child's point of view he has two children in the film who are really, really effective, but also the idea of, of adults like, you know, a paleobotanist and a paleontologist who have dedicated their lives to these creatures suddenly and quite wonderfully seeing them come alive in front of them. There's an incredible childlike, you know, fascination with all that, even though they are adults. And like I said, when, <laughs> with my story of, of experiencing it, for me, that that's them seeing that giant brachiosaurus at the, the start is that's how I felt watching this film. Like, oh my God, I didn't realize this was even possible. So yeah, for all those reasons and a whole lot more, definitely solidly on my 250. Yeah, there's actually a lot there that I think we might come back to on the other side of the spoiler zone, particularly like say the way in which Jurassic Park almost kind of ushered this era of movie making into being. Where you have, you could argue that like it is its own Jurassic Park. It's ground zero of, you know, people messing with forces with unintended yeah. consequences that effectively re reformatted the kind of movie uh, landscape that followed. One, but just because we one mentioned thing this a couple of times. We'll definitely in terms come of, back to Alex is the Chilean sea bass. Because, see, I agree. The, the, the movie didn't. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I see that in, uh, I've seen that in restaurants in my head. You know, Attenborough's Scottish delivery of like, Chilean sea bass echoes around my head and I go, oh, I'm going to get that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, it, we come back to this idea of who it's for, whether it's aimed at adults or children. And this is what's, what's kind of fascinating is that Crichton actually wrote it as an adult story. Um, he originally the first draft of the book that he wrote, he wrote it from the child's perspective. And then he got a really angry reaction from his kind of test readers saying, why would you write a book like this? And they couldn't tell him why. And eventually they figured out that it's because it was aimed at children. So he rewrote it, aimed at adults. Um, and apparently that got the great reaction from like his test readers. And then Spielberg read it and he was like, yeah, but I, I want to see it from the child's perspective. And it, it is that stuff that Alex mentions, the reaction shots, the Spielberg face, the wonder. I mean, very famously, Jurassic Park, like Science of the Lambs, only features 14 minutes of dinosaurs in total. Um, which is amazing. Most of it's people reacting to dinosaurs or looking at people reacting to dinosaurs. But Jess, what about yourself? Do you think Jurassic Park belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yeah, definitely. I think like Alex, this is definitely the film that I've seen the most throughout my life. And not just in that kind of way with Spielberg, where it'll be on the TV and you catch bits and pieces, like we said with Catch Me If You Can. Like I sit down to watch this probably every six months. And it's one of those films as well that you always force other people around you to watch. And they'll watch, and you know, there's something in it for everybody, like you're saying, for kids, for adults, like at every stage in my life, I've kind of identified with or connected with different bits. When I was a kid and I first saw this, like 
Ellie was just like, she was my dinosaur. It was this woman. She was professional. She was respected. I knew what her job was. She was really passionate. I'd never really seen that before. I hadn't seen that depicted before. So that for me was like, wow. And, you know, you, you go through the phase, you're like, I want to be a paleontologist, you know, botanist. And then you want to be an archaeologist for the Indiana Jones. And kids can really kind of be drawn into that kind of thing. But um, I've always loved as well, like people talk about the effects and it might be like the animatronics or the CGI. What I love about this film is it doesn't completely abandon practical effects. You have stuff with lights like I love. One of my favorite scenes in it is the first kind of the opening where the um, first guy dies and we don't see a dinosaur. We see lights, the box is moving, everything's kind of very, it's, it's edited very cleverly. You don't feel like you're not seeing the dinosaurs and you're getting that kind of sense of threat there's fog there's just everything is kind of crazy and that I feel like with now with blockbusters not that I don't respect blockbusters but with their visuals it goes too far sometimes with CGI and they don't try to ground it in reality and then it's just that's why it's so kind of flat and dead and not it's not as engaging whereas with this you have rain and you have all these different things together and what I feel with the effects here is it's a Venn diagram of the animatronics, the CGI, the practical, it all works together. And that's why you can still watch it now and it doesn't look, you're not embarrassed by it. You know, when you watch something like, you know, old episodes of Buffy or whatever, and you're kind of like looking away when <laughs> at the bad effects, you don't feel that with this. And for a film that's like 27 years old, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's arguably aged better than, say, Godzilla, which is a film that obviously takes a number of cues from it, including actually the one of the great things about Godzilla is it actually steals sequences from the book that Jurassic Park didn't use. It's that desperate to get in on that Jurassic Park action. I think the sequence with the nest egg and the eggs is from I Jurassic think Park. it was successful in terms of merch. Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, yeah. Like, Financially, it was movie, successful. not right? as... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Creatively, artistically, <laughs> so. Okay, Congo then, Andrew. In Congo. <laughs> it is aged better than the special effects in Congo then, to, to put it that way. Um, but no, it is. It's, it's remarkable in terms of construction. What about yourself, Andrew? Do you think that it belongs to the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made absolutely for so many reasons including the reasons that that alex and jess have already given like darren you and i and our um good friend and guest chris lavery were were in yes. your house one time yes. recording like a nakurasawa yes. akira kurosawa movie and afterwards, Samurai, yeah yeah yeah, we, 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 we watched this entire movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, now, to be um, fair, we did also watch... a palate the, cleanser. Yeah, to be fair, we did also watch The Book of Henry. We did watch The Book of Henry, <laughs> the whole thing. But, like, it was so... It just felt so good just watching yeah. it. And as well, with, with a movie that you've seen, like, 10,000 times, um, you can kind of... You can you can you can you can you can do other stuff as well, and and you can kind of make jokes about kind of all of the the things that are happening in it, um, and and you don't you don't miss anything because you 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 kind of, I mean, you can you can definitely get extra things from watching it again and again, but no, it it I I couldn't agree more. Um, it it belongs in the two fifty. It's it's kind of indisputable, um, like. You could, I, you couldn't, you couldn't have this list and not have it on it. Um, uh, would be my view. Yeah. Which is a nice setup for me saying maybe I guess. Um, in that I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> 
in that I'm not I'm not entirely sure whether this or Jaws should be on there. Whether you have to choose between. Well, the Jaws two. definitely should be. In. Oh, okay. Oh, like like both of them. Yeah, I mean, because I do I do feel like you know Spielberg redefining the, the kind of blockbusters several times because he's got this on, he's got the Indiana Jones movies on, he's got Catch Me If You Can, um, he's got obviously he lost Jaws, and I'm kind of like this. Would I rather? Yeah, have I wouldn't. To... I wouldn't lose Jaws. I, like of these, I, like I, I've said before, I'm not a huge fan of Spielberg <laughs> outside of this. But yeah, Jaws seems like a weird one to push off. Like, uh, how many Indiana Jones? All three of them? No, two of them. Um, all four okay. of them have been on at one point or another. Really? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the Kingdom That's of the Crystal bizarre. Skull. Yes, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was on the 250, which is quite a remarkable. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Grim. What? What a time that was. 2008. How long ago? Uh, but yes, so um, yeah, so I mean, maybe. I think I could definitely see the argument for it. I've got no objection to it being on there. But part of me is a little bit like, is the reason that this is on and Jaws is not on simply because the people who vote for the 250 are, you know, 12 years old in 1993, as opposed to... Oh, like, so the same reason Indiana Jones, like, has had two movies on, and or has two movies. Has yeah. two movies on, that sort of stuff. And had four. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, Possibly. I mean... Possibly... But I mean, I like and I love Jaws. And when I'm asked what my favorite film is, you know, I kind of it's one or the other. I'll kind of interchange between the two. But I feel like with Jaws, I mean, you're saying we got 14 minutes of dinosaur here. You never see the shark. I don't know if this is just me and I'm very childish, but you very rarely see the shark. And I know that that was a deliberate. It was actually the editor's choice, uh, Verna Fields. But you're not getting the sense of it's more kind of impending doom. It's just it's a completely different tone. It's a completely different thing. Um, Jurassic Park's more fun. So I'd rather have that on the <laughs> That's a fair point. Yeah, but the the cinematographer was was like, so we're not going to show the dinosaurs, right? It's <laughs> like, no, 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 shoot her, shoot her. Um, hey, sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Um, um, and it is it is worth noting actually in terms of the two fifty, this is the rare movie that has actually been climbing. It dropped off the list briefly in January twenty fourteen, uh, but is now up at position number one hundred and sixty five. So it's gone from 250 to 165 over the past seven years, which is remarkable. All right, then. And uh, Alex, would it be on your own personal 250? And would you know roughly where it is? Yeah, I I mean, I would say this is a top five for me. Uh, I I mean, I go back and forth quite a bit about the idea of lists and favorite films. But this this is, as I say, this is the alpha text. This was the, the template for literally everything else beyond this. This was like me getting interested in like but how did they do that if they didn't create a you know an actual island of dinosaurs and just being fascinated by it and um just something i have consistently like gone to like I, if i'm in a, you know a city and someone's like oh yeah they're showing jurassic park in a local park i'm there you know if they're like oh do you want to spend an obscene amount of money to see it with a live orchestra i'm like yes i i do you know i will, I will do that um it's it's so and, and watching it again what you were sort of saying andrew there about like you know it's a very simple film in a lot of ways so in terms of layers and stuff i actually do um think that you know watching it as a kid you, you focus on certain things watching it as a teenager i found other things and and then watching it this time you know i am struck about like there are different themes, things particularly around like fatherhood and aging and like legacy stuff that would have gone right over my head aged 10 or whatever, where I was just laughing at the arm falling out over in Lara Dern. <laughs> and that's what I think really will always um, has make it quite consistently. So when I talk about like my own lists, I don't really have, you know, lists of my favorite films. Um, but the only thing I am sure of is that this has been on my list consistently, you know, that there have been times where I've gotten really into 
you know, very, very, you know, sort of pretentious forms of cinema and still being like, yeah, but Jurassic Park's still on, <laughs> on the list. So even though like there's been like Italian Fellini films and, and like last year I saw like Uncut Gems twice in the same day. I was obsessed with that. And but like they're, they've all been on the list. But like, to be clear, Jurassic Park, it's always there. It's it's never going to change. I'm looking forward to watching that film again next year. You know, it's it's yeah, definitely. Definitely. And Jess, what about yourself? Would it be on your own personal 250? Yeah, definitely. Like I was saying before, it's one of those films that I often will cite as my favorite film. Um, I always love the look on people's face as well when I say that because I have a degree in film. And I was saying earlier um, that I've been learning sign language. And during the class, one of the things you had to kind of chat about things you like. And I was like, I love film. I have a film degree. And um, the person I was partnered with was like, oh, what's your favorite film? And I was like, Jurassic Park. And she was like, oh. <laughs> and it's not like horror. It's just people find that really unusual. But um, like you were saying, Alex, like because I was so young watching this and because Spielberg was like the first director I understood of like what that job was and what that meant. I was fascinated with like, but how did they do that? And it's not just an animal. And because at the time you think all films are real. I didn't even get that like animation. I was like, there's people somewhere that they film for that. I didn't get that like voice actors were a thing. I could not wrap my head around it. And then with this film, I was like, no, I want to know. How did they do this? And I think it does that. It's done that for a lot of people. Um, But yeah, and there there is so much going on. Like it is it's an adventure film it's fun it's grandiose William's score is incredible another part of I think why it's so timeless um but you know like I watched it this time and I had a really Marxist reading of it and I never expected that but (laughs) when I'm watching it often I'm not watching it in kind of a critical lens and so then when I was watching it for the podcast I was like no you can't just say you like the film and I was like oh my god Hammond's a villain (laughs) (laughs) that kind old Scottish man with the ice cream (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> My mind was like, you're always kind of a bit like, oh, he shouldn't be doing this and oh, and he's like getting carried away. But then I watched it this time. I was like, oh, my God. He's so kindly. <laughs> and like, yeah, he's sort it's of the casting is just it's perfect because he does evoke like his brother, who is everyone's grandfather who looks after the animals. And then you're kind of like, oh, yeah, this this is familiar and similar to what you were saying. Like you're I always watch this thinking the lawyer is a villain. And then, and I'm not just saying this because I am a lawyer, but like this time I was like, no, 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 he's an underling. Like uh, Hammond's the the true. I mean, true the, 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 the lawyer is the one guy who says, "Shh, don't talk during the movie." So I was immediately, <laughs> yeah. I was immediately like, he's not so bad. He he becomes very childlike as well. Like as soon as he's kind of into running to the toilet, the park. <laughs> no, We're he's not wearing the shorts zone, yeah. the whole time. He doesn't have grown-up pants. Well, I, I will. Um, I want to talk about that actually because that is one of like one of my favorite shots in Jurassic Park is the moment because you have like at the start you have these really intense close-ups on you know obviously um, on the character of played by Bob Peck Robert Muldoon and you have the kind of like the shots with the lens flare and the light and the close-up on his mouth and the shotgun and everybody's very intense and everybody's running and like rustling in the trees and everybody's wearing these overalls and Jurassic Park kind of shirts and it's very dark and serious and then you cut to a wide shot and Muldoon is it's wearing such a funny shot and Muldoon yeah. is wearing these short shorts and it's just perfect it's just somehow inexplicably perfect it's like I literally have that in my notes just lawyer on raft so funny and it is so so funny <laughs> yeah. uh, well I, I think in, in that shot he's wearing long trousers and you're thinking he is very poorly dressed for this yeah. and feels like he got the note um, <laughs> after that point because it's all short shorts from there on yeah. 
um, which makes him on the toilet look uh, funnier because it's it's like he's pulled his <laughs> pants down. Yeah. Um, and and Andrew, what about yourself? Would it be on your own personal two fifty? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 what 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 Alex says is very true as well. Um, kind of both both as a child and as an adult, like you can imagine the the both versions of 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 Michael Crichton's <laughs> um, novel book yeah. Yeah, novel being for you what was was his first draft called Billy and the Clonosaurus <laughs> um, I have unfortunately to not unfortunately not <laughs> I mean you wouldn't put it past Crichton like he was such a sort of you know nerd about the science like he, he probably did come up with some well, actually, it's Cretaceous Park because the dinosaurs yeah, that- are all from that area. <laughs> <laughs> and then the marketer's like, "Sorry, Michael, just go, just go back to your writing your your book about man men being sexually harassed by women, or kind of like the weird obsession that we have with Japan in 1980s Los Angeles. Just go back to that, please." Michael Crichton, what a strange, strange person. You know, I saw a picture of him. He's like nine feet tall. I was watching a making of, and he was on set. He was huge. He's the real monster in this. <laughs> Got him loom, looms large. Um, There's no visual effects. He just put his suit on. <laughs> he is all the dinosaurs. Um, I do actually love that, by the way, one of the sequences of like the dinosaurs kind of struggling on a log is based off the fact that one of the stuntmen fell down when he was trying to like help them animate the sequence. They're like, fine, it's in the movie. Um, which is quite apparently it was just staff. I don't think it was stuntmen. They made everybody in the car park like run and whatever, and one of them fell over. They had um some kind of like mop or something yeah. they wanted to use as like the tree, and someone fell, and they were like, "This is hilarious. <laughs> this is going in the movie." Um, yeah. I mean, I do love that the the actual like dinosaur expert Jack Horner, I think his name is, apparently had them do something like six months of mime school in order to learn how to move like a dinosaur which I quite like, given that nobody knows how a dinosaur moves. So it just seems like a really weird power play. Um, yeah, but that's become the, like, the irony is that's now the template for what we think a dinosaur moves like, you know, and to the point where a few years ago when they discovered they all should have had feathers, you know, there was actually like people kind of obsessed being like, no, 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 like Jurassic Park established this. Thing. <laughs> they look like big iguanas. Yeah. Well, I mean, but you do find it upsetting. I recently found out that an adult triceratops doesn't look, they don't have that, um, kind of shape and skull and they're not called a triceratops now it's like the whole pluto thing and it's devastating you're like no because it, it, i saw it in israel how dare you yeah sam neil rested against the triceratops thank you very much um i mean even- like when you talk about cultural impact you can't documentaries after this i believe were quite annoyed with this because it's like we're there's only one way now we're allowed to have dinosaurs look and <laughs> people won't watch it um, like with their they they try to do what with like feather boas on the dinosaurs and they don't really react like the way they want well yeah because um, they've had this big discussion like spielberg apparently said no a lot of this stuff came from spielberg so it's like velociraptors are only as big as chimps but spielberg is like no i want them big as people and he's like okay fine but you know the t-rex isn't actually an apex predator it's more a scavenger like a hyena and spielberg's like yeah but like a you know 10 foot tall hyena coming at you is really scary right he's like I don't, I don't think that's the context, Stephen. It's like, that's the context. Yeah, but this is why it's a good film, because the film covers that in having Hammond be a character who's literally like, no, 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 these have to look a certain way. You know, they're all female. We can control everything. Like, it, it all works. And I'm, I've, 
I've listened to nerds as well on the like the 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 on this podcast. Uh, no, I think like on the Discovery Channel or something, arguing over because there's 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 paleontologists who really want the T Rex to be a predator because they think that's awesome. <laughs> so they find like all these reasons why it's a predator and why it's not a scavenger. But like scavengers are cool. Yeah, I like this. It's like Batman like versus dogs. Superman, but somehow even nerdier. Um, yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would win I can... a fight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they they all have like kind of you know um, um, like dinosaur toys behind them yeah. <laughs> when they're talking about the big the very uh, serious, serious science. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But I mean, Anyways. this it, Jurassic Park was arguably the culmination of the, what's known as the dinosaur renaissance, which ran from the 1960s through to the 1990s, where dinosaurs suddenly became cool again. Because apparently, it's one of those things where you, dinosaurs being cool you would have assumed was always the case for kids but apparently it only really kicked into gear in the 60s and 70s and therefore Spielberg would have been a child during that and apparently that's what drew him to that and Crichton obviously wanted to write the book about that as well it's kind of interesting like how these things go and apparently a lot of the science behind Jurassic Park has obviously been disproven since but as as kind of Alex pointed out I do like the theory that Hammond is just a huckster and he made up a bunch of silly scary reptile monsters and it was like what is, the theory goes basically that uh, he invited the paleontologist and the paleobotanist to the uh, to the island not in order to assuage the insurance people, but in order to see whether his dinosaurs would pass muster, whether he could legally call them dinosaurs. That's I mean, the fact. that also it makes sense because like if you've invented the iPod, you're not going to bring in like vinyl guys to be like you know hey check out this new thing. Like yeah. you're not going to do that. It doesn't make sense to bring you know some of those people. Like, why bring a chaotician? He's just going to say this will end in chaos, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It only makes sense if it's all a big elaborate scam with an end game that's basically around getting the endorsement of these people. Um, And then, yes, for myself, definitely. This is definitely easily on my 250. It's probably in my top 100, maybe even my top 50. It is a movie, as everybody else here has pointed out, that I never get tired of watching, that I will always stop and watch when it's on television, and that I have watched pretty religiously once every six months for God knows how long. So, yes, absolutely, on a yes and then final question um if listeners have not seen jurassic park alex would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device yes i would um and i'm sure we'll get into this as well but it's it's wonderful um it it will make you feel like a child again i i was what i was watching it last night for this and you know the bit where sam neill stands up in the car and his brow is furrowed, and he, when he takes off his glasses, and they, you know he's just like fascinated. Um, it gives me goosebumps. And when they turn, and some of that is the music, which is incredible, and him knowing not to like, and the ca- exactly, but knowing to pace the camera on the human level and not have it fly around, you know, the trees or anything, or show a wide shot, which every stupid Marvel movie does. You know, the, the, there's no awe anymore in any of these films, and he does all that perfectly. And even the way. The rest of the dinosaurs, the Barisolophuses and the Brachiosauruses and the off in the swamp in the distance, they're they're blurred. You know, they're they're they they're in the distance. They're, the sun is there, and and it's just a perfect shot. And Hammond being a salesman for all that, I mean, I think that scene alone should, uh, if you haven't seen it before, absolutely go for it. It's and then at the same time, for all those other reasons we're kind of talking about it, it's a film about I think the magic of film and the magic of special effects. You know, it's. It's funny because there are references in the film itself to this when when Hammond's showing them the the exposition film 
he actually says at a certain point, now this score is only temporary. <laughs> this music will be changed, you know. Um, and later on, like Laura Dern tells him, like, it's all a special effect, you know, the, the, the park. And it's, it's wonderful for all those reasons. It's not too knowing. It's not too, um, you know, kind of boring in terms of the science and stuff like that. It's just, it's, it's, it manages to take the book, which is, as you've already said, Darren, very sciencey and very long and really some of the times the life just gets sucked from it because he's talking about it and it realizes that instead of like four pages of explaining how they used emu eggs to you know incubate the dinosaurs spielberg just has a robot arm you know pick up an egg and turn it and achieve the exact same thing you know in terms of like messaging and everything else and just no no we don't need any of that you just have a robot arm pick up the egg turn it and literally snatch the egg off you know sam neill and put it down again so absolutely if you have not seen this film I would strongly recommend it. The other thing, and I would really, because I'm not a big fan of 3D generally, but a few years ago I saw this film because they did a, a 3D restoration of it and I, I've watched it in the headset. It's incredible, like incredible. Spielberg had, had personally gone into it and, and sort of said that while he was shooting it, he didn't realize at the time, but because um, so much of it is, is, he almost like created it to kind of almost be 3D before the technology was there. So you, you see it in shots where the camera like swings under the fence. But so much of it is like dinosaurs coming out of fences or like coming in through cars and all these kind of things. He actually sort of did create it at the time to really lean itself or lend itself well towards 3D. And I remember years ago, I was interviewing um, Pete Docter, um, who did the Pixar guy. And he said that for him, really good 3D films treated as a window that can be looked out of rather than something coming in through a window at you. And... Um, I remember thinking that when I watched this, like the, the raindrops, that it does feel like you're in rain. It's it's not a showy 3D film at all, but I would actually recommend you watch it in 3D as well if you can. Just, But maybe that's me because I've seen it 8,000 times. So any little different way of viewing it is like, whoa, this is incredible. But um, so, yeah, I would recommend it watching it and recommend watching it in 3D if you can. Um, it's also worth noting, actually, again, really, really fun, boring, Michael Crichton-esque number stuff coming up here. But it did actually have a successful, that 3D release in 2013 was what pushed it over the $1 billion mark worldwide, making it the slowest movie to get from $0 to $1 billion worldwide, taking 19.84 years between releases to get there. It's also the movie that has had the longest gap between topping the box office uh, in live action where it was um, absent for something like 14 years, which is longer than the gap of any other live-action film. It's been number one four times at the US box office in its release cycle, um, including during this previous summer, where it was the king of the box office of 2020 um, because it showed a drive-ins, and arguably perhaps a really good drive-in movie, given that it's arguably... I was going to recommend, yeah. <laughs> like, with, with, uh, with Alex recommending to watch it in, in, in 3D, I haven't seen this in drive-in, but um, I, I, w I was thinking, like, yeah, it's the perfect drive-in movie. Um, because yeah, that's what it, they're... It really does seem it's like kind it of what they're doing, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's going to a theme park, and it's kind of like a theme park experience. And Jess, what about yourself? Would you recommend that people watch it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've met people who I believe were claiming that they haven't seen it because they think that it's embarrassing, which I don't understand. But um, and I would always just ask why. I think it's one of those films where, you know, when you've kind of been through cultural osmosis, like, you know, you think you know what a film is and then you're kind of put off watching it. Like, I remember when I was a teenager, I was always like, oh, I don't want to watch The Shining because I felt like with The Simpsons and South Park and like everywhere I was like, oh, I know what that is. I'm not interested. And then you watch it and you're like, oh, no, I was wrong. Um, it's still, you know, it's not 
dated the way that you think it might be or it still kind of takes your breath away and this film I mean we've all seen it how many times hundreds of times and every different little way that you can see it or you know I'd say those kind of dips that you're talking about Darren is because people are shown their kids and so as their kid like that's what's happening because it's one of those films you never forget where you you know when you watched it and your experience of it and it's an experience people want to share which I think is very special and um, Alex like you were saying like there's so much joy involved in the filmmaking here and I feel like that's what really upsets me about stuff like Marvel Marvel and DC where they've taken something that is kind of not just for children but is about children and aimed at children and came from children's media and stripped all the joy and colour from it and has just become so cynical and you can't have a fun Batman and Batman can't dance and it's just so sad. Would you say that that the problem with that kind of box office power that they're using is that it doesn't require any discipline to attain it, Jess? You read <laughs> you read about what others have done and, and you just, they take it to the next step. They didn't earn that knowledge for themselves and they don't take any responsibility for it. They stood on the shoulder of geniuses to accomplish something as fast as they could. And before they knew what they had, they patented, packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox. Is that what you're saying, Jess? Yeah, in a nutshell. <laughs> You, you know, you joke, but like, and I, I was, we were going to talk about this a little later, but the special, I do think that speech you just said does apply to the special effects here because it comes at this like perfect time between, you know, they were looking at stop motion and they were building the world's biggest, you know, animatronics for this. And then they, one guy was like, hey, you know, well, what if we did it with computers? And apparently you know, a screensaver, like apparently it was literally a screensaver. Kathleen Kennedy was wandering through the offices and saw a screensaver of a dinosaur and was like, it's in the movie. Um, like, um, also, he's the big, he's the world's biggest jerk. Like, he's a scientist. You kind of want to say, "All right, yeah, what do you do? Do you just like you never read any books, or you never you never studied <laughs> maths? You just came up with it all yourself? Is that how you go about things? Um, like, well, what I exactly is your point? His point is, and he does like he gets a lot of the good lines, but I think his point is like. At one point, he sort of says, no, no, discovery is chaos. You shouldn't be like, you know, discovery, like you're just like wandering blindly into these things that you don't understand. And 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 again, going back to like that applying to the special effects for this film, I think the reason why the special effects hold up in this is because they're hiding the scenes, you know, because you're shooting it in, at night and rain um, because you're you, you don't want people to see the CGI. And, and to Jess's point now if you spend $2 million on a, a new Marvel shot, they they put it on like in slow motion. So you're just seeing this like grayish CGI blur. Whereas in Jurassic Park, because it is this weird position between half animatronic and half um, very early CGI and done, and, and done very, very neatly, it's, it's fascinating because they, they hide the effects. And I remember Neil Jordan said that about um, Interview with a Vampire. Uh, he sort of said he was, he was treating the the advent of cgi as like something that you have to almost hide that you're using and in the years subsequent like you, there are lots of stories about peter jackson seeing this and deciding i can make the lord of the rings and george lucas seeing this and thinking i can make the prequels which again two films that you know i think the weaker parts of them are are the the, the overabundance of cgi whereas this is that perfect you know brief little start of cgi before it became too much 
And so, yeah, your your speech about like building on the shoulders, taking something, I think that applies to all the, the CGI messes that happen after this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's giving it to directors who do not have the artfulness of Spielberg or the craft or technique of Spielberg, basically, and letting them have the toys without necessarily having the art to understand how they're best used. Again, only four, depending on who you ask, only four or six minutes of CGI dinosaurs in the entire movie. And apparently they took a year to render those sequences. Uh, which is astounding when you think of it as a game-changing kind of film. Um, I watched anyway, a documentary sorry. actually this morning on the special effects, not to get too into it, but there were effects that I didn't even realize were effects that they were doing. Like there's a bit where Ariana Richards falls through the roof yeah. and they did that with a stunt woman and then put the girl, little girl's face onto the stunt woman with CGI. Yeah. Something that I was watching being like, that just looked like they dropped that kid through a roof. <laughs> like, and I've seen that done in like, the, you know, modern films and you notice, you can see Daniel Craig's big potato head on a stunt man, you know, when yeah. it's driving along a motorbike. You can see that stuff. And then this is a film I've seen, you know, 900 times and I hadn't seen that. Yeah, apparently it was this stunt double accidentally looked up and they were like, it's it's too good to not to put it in the movie. Um, and then finally, so yes, I absolutely would recommend it. If you haven't seen Jurassic Park, watch Jurassic Park. Um, it's available online in various places. It is well worth your time. It's a sense of wonder and adventure and majesty. And we'll maybe talk in the spoiler zone about some of the sequels, or maybe we won't. I don't know. But anyway, all right, with that in mind, then let's segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Zone. So Jess, what is Jurassic Park about? Oh. That's pretty funny we lost him just at that point. <laughs> he doesn't want me to answer. <laughs> so Jess, what is Jurassic Park about for you? So as I was saying earlier, um, it used to be about the dinosaurs and the adventure. It was very much, I always read it as an adventure film. It's like something like The Mummy that you just don't really get anymore where the whole family can watch it and maybe some bits aren't that appropriate for kids, but y'all just kind of ignore it. Um, but now I think it's it's a very kind of capitalist film and it, it's about kind of, you know, the the horrors that can come from capitalism. I was really surprised upon watching it how soon into the runtime there's a death and I think it's another thing as a kid you kind of just breeze past it I completely had forgotten about that but Hammond the reason that the three of them go to the Isla Nublar in the first place is because the lawyer is like we need experts to sign off on this because the family are going to sue you because that man died and Hammond's just like yeah whatever how do we get how do we make this go away and even when his own grandchildren have been put into mortal danger, they are injured, terrified, traumatized for the rest of their lives. He's still sitting there eating his ice cream and going, I can do it again. I can make this work. And I think that, you know, I've heard people talk about and kind of um, criticize Jurassic World. Is Jurassic World the new, the 2015? Um, Jurassic World for the fact that they're like they'd never get to do that again and you know Jurassic Park was in the same universe as Jurassic World they'd never get to do it again and it's like capitalism have we not heard of like Alton Towers people have died there these things do happen this is an island a lot of it's probably very hidden it hadn't been released to the public yet 
Hammond has a lot of money. There's a lot of different stakeholders who would be quite motivated not to let this stuff get out. Like this would to- this could totally happen again and again and again and again. <laughs> yeah, it's there. There, there is like a whole load of science that kind of um, companies own, and they're they're waiting for like the 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 right time to use it. That um, like like even with um, um, one of the one of the treatments for COVID had like um, I'm blanking on the name, but it 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 had been um designed i think to to fight a number of things and have been tried on a number of things including ebola um and every 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 time kind of like every few years there are there are these large kind of tests um but then like it it ends up eating somebody um, I, guess. <laughs> well, I mean, um, to, back to what Jess said there, like it's notable that like you've had inc- incidences in like Disney World where children have been eaten by alligators and like crocodiles, and they're yeah, not, Florida, they're oh not, they're not genetically engineered monsters that are the key attraction. But the park's still open. I mean, again, like it, it's worth pointing out. I don't know. I kind of dropped off there, and I'm sorry about that. But it's worth pointing out that like things like the opening of Disney World in California during the pandemic. Like, which was a big push with Disney pushing to open it as the cases were soaring in California is a kind of an example. It's very much, you know, it's perhaps not as sexy as well. You know, Jeff Goldblum got chased and has kind of stripped his shirt off and lounged around the control room. But it's it's very much along the lines of no, 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 no. The company has decided that the theme park is going to open. This is a profitable market. Let's have a go at it. Um and often, I mean, with the with the kids and stuff, they often try to kind of push it onto like user error. And it's like that McDonald's thing with the coffee and the burning as if it's like somehow your fault. Whereas if you look at like SeaWorld, it's like those are supposed to be the experts. You've trained them. You've done all this stuff. You've done all your research and et cetera. And those people are still dying and those people are still a danger. And SeaWorld is still to this day trying to legally fight against the fact that now the trainers aren't allowed to swim physically in the same area as the animals because it's dangerous and they were dying too often. But SeaWorld is like, no, we're not making quite as much money from people going to watch these as if it's because of that and not because of people watching Blackfish because capitalism does not think about why are people not doing this anymore? Why are people hesitant about this? I mean, because of the terrible capitalist dystopia we all live in, you know, there actually is a Jurassic Park uh, roller coaster that I have been on in Los Angeles would strongly recommend. But famously, when it opened in 1996, like 100 passengers were injured by malfunctioning like spray. They just opened it up again. And then six weeks later, more people were injured because two boats collided into each other. So we don't even have to like reach for metaphors here and applications. <laughs> well, they literally made a ride based on Jurassic Park that injured people and then they opened it up again. <laughs> Well, cap- capitalism values authenticity. Like with the, with the, with the, with Disneyland having like a crocodile who will try to eat you just like in Hook. Um, <laughs> Peter, pa- Peter Pan. Hook is, Hook is not, Peter Hook Pan. is not a Disney property. Um, <laughs> I do beg your pardon. Um, you joke, but there are people who like, you know, there's always one story with a horror film where it's like a person died in the theater and it'll be from something completely unrelated. Like they just, you know, had an aneurysm or whatever, but it's like this film is so scary kills and people eat that up well that's the william castle school of advertising yes yeah, like <laughs> the dingler um so scary that people have had like heart attacks while watching it 
Um, I love the old Hitchcock trailers, <laughs> where it's like this this film was too frightening um, <laughs> to show any clips from yeah. it. So yeah. I'm just going to wander around the sets and talk for about two minutes, and I hope you enjoy and appreciate <laughs> it. Um, but yeah, no, and again, it's kind of interesting that like you mentioned the real world kind of like reflecting Jurassic Park and then the, the horrors of capitalism there. It's interesting that as the series has gone on, it has itself reflected the horrors of its own production and franchise filmmaking. Like, I think that Jurassic World is one of the worst blockbusters that I have ever seen. Um, it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Um, but it is very explicitly about like making another Jurassic Park movie. Like the central like metaphor that drives Jurassic World is we are franchising Jurassic Park, whether you like it or not, based on the power of nostalgia and the established brand. And we're just going to keep making these things until we run them into the ground. And it's kind of fascinating that, you know, we had that quote that we referenced before we went to the spoiler zone about how, you know, you could read Jurassic Park as a metaphor for itself and how it changed cinema and maybe not for the best. But I like that even... Like, outside of the literal horrors of capitalism that Jess mentioned, which is, like, people dying and industry still churning, even in a smaller cultural sense of, well, you know, this thing was dead, but we brought it back from the dead and repackaged it and sold it to you as a commercial opportunity. I love that Jurassic Park is like, yes, now we are ourselves the very thing that we are commenting on, becoming this almost kind of, like, self-reflexive kind of metatextual eating its own tail kind of, like, metaphor, basically. But and it's great as well to make Jurassic Park sequels because even the first movie makes the point that this is a terrible idea. Yeah. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have bred raptors. <laughs> and then every movie gets to do the same thing in, in yeah. a metatextual way. Um, so yeah. <laughs> to be fair, to it's like why 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 do dinosaurs why why do they have to make super dinosaurs? <laughs> yeah. Like, aren't dinosaurs cool enough? I know, but that's, like, to Darren's point, like, in the, that 2015 one, they literally are like, yeah, we, you know, dinosaurs aren't really scary anymore. No one's wondered by, let's make a super raptor. And, like, in many ways, that film is a super raptor. Yeah. It's corporate made. It feels like it was written by a board rather than, like, an individual person. It, it's full of, like, CGI effects. Like, you know, you just need to compare the two scenes when, when they're walking into the, under the gate in Jurassic Park and, and, and Jeff Goldblum says, what do they got in there, King Kong? And to the equivalent one in Jurassic World where they're just on like a CGI sky train and the monorail like zooms through a big CGI and it's all just like this this doesn't they haven't earned any of this. They've stood on the shoulders of giants. And, yeah. I'd I'd love to as well, like uh, people aren't going to be impressed by these raptors eating like a normal cow. We need like a really ripped looking cow. <laughs> like, like we want the cow to come back maybe with a little bit of raptor in its mouth. Uh yeah. Well, I mean, the the cow <laughs> certainly was ripped when they were done with it. Thank you very much. Um, I do love, by the way, like even the, like even the safety protocols at like Jurassic Park, like even the parts that are supposed to be safe and secure, like the raptor tent. I love that they don't secure the pen holding the raptor like to the panel. It's just apparently floating free, and all it takes is a little push to unblock it and basically allow him to chomp down on the workmen. Do they not visit any zoos? Like animals are transported. I. I can only assume people aren't getting eaten all the time by lions, but he just didn't. He didn't consult any experts. Apparently, like Muldoon is the, the coolest character, but he is really bad at his job. Like they even say at one point, like we brought him over. He was like a big.
big game hunter, you know, in Africa. And you're like, all right, why is this guy in charge of compliance at the world's he, most He can't place? go back to South Africa. <laughs> 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 we don't talk about it, but he can't go back. Yeah. <laughs> they're in his little short shorts. And they're like, are you sure that that's like safe work attire for this situation? He's like, I'm the boss. I make them. There's actually, a, I noticed like when, when he comes up, when, when Muldoon comes up to talk to them, you can almost see Hammond's annoyed. Like, oh no, not this whack of word. And he comes up and he's like telling them about like, yeah, we've basically made like dolphins that are smarter and can kill people and no one can look at them because we have to keep them in this tiny enclosure and feed them a live cow every day. Like, why have we done this? That's just, that's, and I love that acting from Hammond because he's just annoyed by everyone he has to work with. He hates Nedry so much. And and it's like he's enabling you to do all this stuff you want to do on the cheap as well. What I find really frustrating is he keeps on and on and on. No expense spared, no expense spared. He's not paying off this family who have lost their son, you know, father, whatever. Nedry comes to him being like, the, the wolf's at my door with debt, John. And yeah. he's like, I don't care. I don't, that's like, not my problem. <laughs> I don't want to have this discussion again. And it's like, pay him whatever you want. He's yeah, running he's... this entire park, apparently, like animatronically from this one computer that's like massive and crap. And you're but it's like him one fence the goes down. <laughs> Well, he's very concerned with costs because, like, like, like the ice cream is going to melt. That sea bass like, is not cheap. Yeah, I was, yeah. I, well, I imagine that whenever we don't see Hammond, he's eating food that other people left behind yeah, because he can't <laughs> like go to the waste. sea bass. Yeah, they all kind of leave. It's like my grandchildren, and it's like who go outside and meet them, and I'm going to eat this sea bass. Yeah, Yeah. Muldoon, would you take a jeep out and find my grandchildren? I have to eat a tub of ice cream that's about to go off. These two things are equivalent. Where it's like. Uh, I need you to drive to your certain debt. I have something important that I need to do instead of that. They're not getting paid enough for that at all. Like, I want to know what the hazard pay was. Yeah. Um, also, they're clearly so terrified when he's like sending them off on the tour. They're all looking at each other like, this is too early. We're, we've only got Nedry who's written two million lines of code and he's at the vending machines. But what has he done? He's literally been like, obviously my grandchildren should be here for this maybe colossal failure slash compliance investigation. I will send them off with my lawyer as well. Like, he doesn't even go with them. <laughs> like, it's a safety check after someone's died. It's not as if at the, at the point of the film and our narrative these characters starting, someone's already dead. And I completely forgot that. And then this rewatch, I was like, oh my God. See, I, like, he, it's a bit dark. his grandchildren and he... And Mr. Arnold, like you say, is sitting there going like, this is an awful idea. There's a storm. So even if you don't want to look at any of their own safety issues, and he's just, he's not interested. Hammond's like, I'm going to sit in here and wait for you to all come back and I'm going to have a nice time and have my nice meal and wait. Is the, yeah, is this, I'm about to say, is this a really, is there a really dark subtext there? There is. I think this is Spielberg's, <laughs> genuinely, I think this is Spielberg's confession for killing those children on the Twilight Zone. He was the executive producer of that film with John Landis. He should have been in control and he walked away. And now what? Since The Twilight Zone came out, he had his own kid and he's suddenly working through all this stuff and he's putting it in there. I genuinely think there's some stuff in that, this film about Well, that. I mean, there, there um, definitely is a lot of fatherhood stuff, but I was more thinking in terms of like keeping it light and cheerful. Um, in terms of- <laughs> no, no, no. Let's, let's go back. <laughs> Going back to those dead kids with that dead actor. Um, but no, there's, there's, we- uh, in, in one of the making of um, when the, the hurricane hit like the set, um, Spielberg, again, tells this story where he's like watching the... the um, <laughs> 
this is really dark, but he's, he has a story on the making of where he says, I went up to the roof of the hotel and watched this hurricane come in and just devastate the local economy. And it was the great, all the buildings were like blown away. And he just sat up on the hotel and he said, it was the best special effect I've ever seen. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, wow, like you, you do need that kind of mind to pull this film together. But like also, wow, like, oof. Yeah, he is hammered. Yeah, like, no, the, 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 that's it. Like he is, yeah. I mean, like, like he, he ma- he's managing to neglect his grandchildren even while trying to make up for not looking after his own children <laughs> yeah. by looking after them yeah. and trying to kind of uh, treat them because his his own child, Dennis... Um, <laughs> Thanks, is, Dad. Is, ...is very badly treated by him. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, um, and it's one of the things that I picked up as, like, you know, as a, gr- as a grown-ass man now, is the moment where Nedry points out that, like, he bid for this contract and he kind of implies that Hammond really screwed him on it because he's like... You would not get anybody who would do the work that I did at the bid that I did. You should be thankful for this. And now watching- He bid too low. <laughs> he bid too low. But like looking at John Hammond and knowing what we know about John Hammond, what do you reckon the odds are that he arrived and it's like, oh, by the way, the job is three times the size I told you that it was. And you're on the island anyway. And oh, yeah. With death. Yeah. It's Absolutely. like you need to do the job uh, you, you, of, 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 of two or three men. That's how you get that promotion <laughs> yeah. and a raise. <laughs> yeah. And you- <laughs> Just gotta get get ahead, but actually, yeah, this is worth talking about in terms of of kind of Hammond as Spielberg, actually. Um, and to be honest, the dark thing that I was suggesting there was that like he was planning to just kill off the children and his lawyer, and this was just an elaborate smokescreen in order to make this problem go away. Because it's notable how he God, yeah. how he stacks those jeeps with people he doesn't like, like even Malcolm. He's like, I do hate that man. Like I'm, I'm gonna be honest. If you had a like a culmination of people who Hammond didn't like in one place during the middle of a freak storm that leads to a bunch of dinosaurs getting loose, I'm just saying I wouldn't put it past him. But yeah, one of the big changes um, between the book and the film is the characterization of John Hammond, uh, where the book is very, very explicit in John Hammond being, to be, to be quite frank, a bit of a monster. Um, in that actually, like, there are, he's he was described as the dark side of Walt Disney um, in terms of how he was kind of written. So in the book, he says things like, <laughs> the reason why he decided to use this dinosaur research to do stuff like, you know, create an entertainment resource rather than use it for, I don't know, developing life-saving drugs or doing, like, vital DNA research. In the book, it's because, like, entertainment is less highly regulated. So he has to concern himself less with like certification and external bodies regulating what he actually does with them. Um, personally, I would never help mankind. He grumbles at one point, complaining that he can't even sell a life-saving drug at prohibitive prices without people complaining about it. Um, at one point, he you said... should learn from Martin Screlly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, at one point, um, Book Hammond chuckles to himself, nothing is going to stop me from opening Jurassic Park to all the children of the world or at least to the rich ones. Um, At one point when his grandkids go missing, Book Hammond is so indifferent that he doesn't even look up from his bowl of ice cream. Let's not get carried away, he says, in response to the panic of his employees. Um, And apparently, obviously, in the book, and again, we're in the spoiler zone so we can spoil this, he gets a really, really brutal kind of comeuppance, where he's kind of like eaten by the dinosaurs, obviously, and has this bitter, ironic sort of like, he gets what he deserves at the end of the story. But he kind of just waltzes out of Jurassic Park like some sort of karmic Houdini, considering the amount of people that he's killed and the amount of lives that he's indirectly responsible for wasting. And the film really just kind of cuts him a surprising amount of slack. 
I think it does, but I also kind of think it's more of an interesting ending that he doesn't, because it is more consistent with how these things go. It's never the CEOs. It's never the, the you know, they they do walk away. And then, and I think that is a conscious decision, not just based on, on the performance of Attenborough, which is very initially quite warm and you're kind of like charmed by him. And then it gets darker as it goes on. I think that's a, a better ending than just having him, you know, eaten by a dinosaur like the lawyer was, because it, it's... Of course, the millionaire gets away with it. Back into his helicopter where he looks at his stick forlornly and thinks, <laughs> probably, maybe I'll try a different one. Maybe I will do it in, you know, Florida or Orlando and I'll be able to control it. And, and as the subsequent films show, that kind of is what happened. Florida is perfect for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because there's a picture of Oppenheimer on Nedry's desk, which yes. I imagine is a little like two fingers from Nedry to, to <laughs> Hammond in the film. But is is yeah, another great little detail. Right there with the atomic bomb as well. But yeah, no, because in terms of Hammond, though, I think there's been an argument, and I think Spielberg himself has conceded this, that he sees too much of himself in Hammond to judge him. In that Hammond is very much, he's this showman. He's, as, as kind of Alex pointed out, he's a storyteller. He's a myth maker. He's this guy who, you know, started out doing little flea shows and then kind of elevated up to the grandest possible spectacle. And there's a real sense in kind of watching the movie that, like, Spielberg, if he identifies with anybody in the film, he probably identifies with Hammond. And there's a real sense of kind of almost letting himself off the hook there in terms of kind of just as, as a director, as a storyteller. Because I think it's notable that this came, um, Jurassic Park came at a very much at a low point in terms of Spielberg's career. Um, he had had a string of less than successful films, including films like, say, The Color Purple, Always, and Hook, uh, which Andrew alluded to there, none of which were usually financially successful. He apparently wanted to make Schindler's List as his next big project because he really wanted Oscars, um, and also because he wanted to do something that was worthwhile and important and something that had value. But Universal said, we'll only let you make Schindler's List if you make this adaptation of this book that we bought the rights to. And apparently it's interesting that he cast he cast Attenborough in the role because Attenborough won his Oscar for directing Gandhi in 1983, which was the last year that Spielberg was nominated for E.T. So I kind of love the idea of kind of, again, very much kind of like nominating both your surrogate and your evil alter ego. Was 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 Miracle on 34th Street after this or before? Well, that's Attenborough. Because... That's that's not uh, Spielberg. No, yeah, oh, yes. the, the, but the, the, uh, what what I what I mean is is it, it kind of um, it he is basically the Santa Claus. <laughs> That's why it's so difficult to kind of see him as a villain. I guess, yeah, unless you see a Santa Claus as a villain. Uh, well, he does break into your house. It was the following year, to be fair. But uh... I guess he punches that guy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or he hits him with a cane. Um... Um, but no, because and I, I think I know why you don't see him as a villain, Andrew, because like. You know, we've talked on the podcast for the past, you know, four or five years, food waste as one of the big endemic yes. problems of the 250. And I think yeah. that, like, Hammond's steadfast, valiant refusal to allow food <laughs> to go to waste is enough that perhaps, perhaps you cannot cast him as a villain in this story. That's um, exactly this is a good food right. waste problem. But he's yeah. more, he's fine with, like, lives. Expendable, whatever. Grandchildren. <laughs> yeah. I can get more of those. Food. No. Ice but, cream. Yeah. To be fair, even those grandchildren probably are going to be food, so they're not going to go to waste, right? Again, I don't want to make this yeah, dark because yeah, it's a very fun film. But specifically, after two children were killed in a Steven Spielberg film with a stunt gone wrong yeah. and Jennifer Jason Lee's father, Spielberg said of the crash, it made me grow up a little bit more and 10 years later made this film. Like, everyone just forgets this happened. But, like, I really do think there's a lot of stuff in here. He had his own... He had kids himself in, like, the late 1980s. And I think... 
suddenly there is a sort of like oh you know you know maybe maybe no film is worth this you know and and he's he's been very clear about like his feelings about some of that stuff to be clear i i think that you know obviously it was actually john landis who sounds more responsible yeah. for that we're not going to necessarily get into retrialing all that but it's i i really do think that whole like to your point darren about the identification not of of um sam neill's character which i think you know most people a lot of people tend to to, to watch and sort of think he, the he's the, the central one the protagonist spielberg obviously is like no no no. you know we're going to you know it, it's hammond and even the way he dresses hammond in white with the cane and malcolm in black like this hammond's really an interesting character because of as as you just said the casting he chooses and and making him a little bit charming and making him a little bit more likable and a grandfather and delighted until you know, he's sort of doing the awkward, like, well, maybe I should go because I'm a man. And he's not even making any real things to, like, go and kill the raptors. He's just like, you know, I, I suppose I should maybe dangle the possibility of that, me going instead of you. Just, just that's so that you know, I... psychology. <laughs> it completely is. He's like, oh, he, like, he knows that she will bridle at that. That she'll be yeah. like, I'm going to go get killed by a dinosaur <laughs> because I'm, you know, it's the 21st John century. Hammond. Sorry, yeah, John Hammond weaponizing 20th. feminism. Yeah, John yeah. Hammond weaponizing feminism. Um, but no, I think actually, like to bring it back to, to what Alex said, actually, and I think this is quite important and this kind of gets at like the larger theme of the movie or one of the larger themes of the movie. And again, it's a bit of a shortcut because it's a Spielberg movie, but fatherhood and in particular Hammond as a father. And I mean, there are obviously other fathers in the movie and we'll probably, this is a nice way to kind of segue into talking about those. But it's very interesting that Hammond is largely defined by two things, by his failure as a father in that you know not only to nedry thanks dad uh, but also <laughs> also to his daughter because he he refuses to deal with the workman complaint because he's going to his daughter who's going through a divorce but notably his daughter doesn't come to the island she sends her grandkids uh she sends her kids his grandkids who he has no connection with whatsoever and in fact actually again you have this recurring motif of failed fatherhood where like at one point grant is like didn't your father ever tell you how to build a treehouse and it's like no because we did not have a father because that's a Spielberg movie trope. But you have an, instead the suggestion that Hammond is trying to position himself as God, as father to the island. He actually talks about how he likes to be present for every birth on the island, every egg, so he can imprint himself on these. And like repeatedly throughout the movie, characters compare what he's doing to playing God. And it's very much in the sense of, well, I failed as a father, but perhaps I could be like the father. I could play God. I could resurrect this entire species of dinosaur. I could have an island of monsters that look up to me as their father figure. And I find it kind of interesting that you have that kind of tension playing playing through the movie as well, I think, in terms of... And I mean, Absolutely. not only that, like he sets himself up as a father figure to an island full of women, basically. It's very, very explicit that the, dinos that the dinosaurs on the island are supposedly all feminine. So he is literally the living walking embodiment of the patriarchy in a very, I want to say Stone Age sense in the same way that this is a Jurassic theme park because it's all ancient history. It's a metaphor. Let's go with it. But I kind of, it, it is fascinating that you have that kind of like going on there, that kind of like gender play. And it feels very conscious and it feels very pointed, very interesting. And again, in terms of Spielberg's pet themes and kind of engagement with absent fathers and stuff like that. I think that's echoed then with a lot of the, the Sam Neill stuff. Like right from the start, the... The idea of having a scene to endear yourself to a character where that character embarrasses and terrifies a child by pretending to disembowel him is really funny and really unique and does partly because of Sam Neill's kind of, 
I remember hearing like Harrison Ford was up yeah. for this role at one point or considered and thinking like it wouldn't really work. You know, he's just a little too grumpy. You kind of need someone who's <laughs> actually wants to actively terrify the child rather than just dismiss them. You know, like Harrison Ford was just like shoot like the guy with the sword and like, oh, who cares? But Sam Neill's like sort of laser focus on like, what do you mean you're disrespecting something I love? I'm going to embarrass you in front of everyone gathered here. And then that, like, the slow progression of, like, well, you know, he's with this incredible woman who's, like, to be clear, I want children. And he's sort of, like, <laughs> dragging his feet. Why? And then, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, like, don't you see, you idiot. But uh, They smell. Then, um. then he ends up, like, in a tree, you know, having to literally fatherhood thrust upon him. And uh, it's great for that. You know, even I, I will forgive the, the mawkish sentimentality shot at the end where he's literally like hugging them like our kids. And you expect like, oh, yeah, they're not going back to their real parents. They've, they've <laughs> like, found their real dad. Yeah. Their real parents sent them out to be eaten by dinosaurs. It's <laughs> yeah. probably for the best. Uh, and actually, yeah, to bring it back to Jess's point as well, you get that nice mirroring of kind of Hammond and Grant where it's like kids are expensive. And you have kind of Ellie go cheap, 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 just in case you don't get that they're two, they're one and the same almost, uh, which is fascinating. All right, then, sorry. Um, in terms of kind of other stuff as well, it's it's notable that um, the apparently Ian Malcolm, let's talk about Ian Malcolm, um, Jeff Goldblum. And I think I've talked about this before. One of the joys of being a child growing up in the 90s is that there was like a three year period where Jeff Goldblum was our generation's Vin Diesel, where he starred in like Jurassic Park independence day and the lost world and he was like the, there was one point in human history where jeff goldblum was our action hero that's kind of remarkable uh, and apparently the role was they considered jim carrey uh, for the role as well and apparently they even considered deleting the character from the film apparently at one point they wanted to combine the character of malcolm and the character of grant in order to streamline the film and apparently um goldblum had to actually convince spielberg to keep them kind of the separate characters and it, it's amazing because he's He's probably the most interesting or the breakout human character of the film, perhaps. He's the one who's certainly the most mimetic, even kind of before the internet age, I think. And like really needed for all those. It kind of makes sense that you'd have someone that annoying um, constantly bringing up these like little debates about like, you know, uh, chaos theory and stuff. But in the film, it does work because he's just flirting with Laura Dern, which makes total sense in the film. So he's going to do the little <laughs> hand drop thing. And someone who's going to sit in a room full of lawyers and say, wham, you know, you slap the lunchbox on it and do all these kind of like purposely annoying kind of speeches because that's his, you know, I, you know, everyone, that, that's a very recognizable, realistic character, I think. And, I feel like and, it's part as well of like hiding, you were saying before, hiding the seams. We need to be critical of this and we need to think like, we need to have a, a very slow burning and like back burner sense of like, something bad is happening here and this shouldn't really this shouldn't be allowed but he's so annoying that you don't pay a lot of attention to it so you're kind of you're dismissing it as Hammond's dismissing it but it's still working its way in the background where you're like mm, maybe he's right this is this the same about his 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 attempted cuckolding as well <laughs> it's kind of you try to ignore it <laughs> and it just kind of keeps kind of keeps pecking away back. at you. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. there's no way that he didn't know that Ellie, uh, Ellie and Grant were together. It's like, <laughs> yeah. are you a thing? And then he's yeah. just like, <laughs> but when he asks, yeah, like as soon as he asks, and you're like, oh, this is awkward. Then the power goes, and they're like, now we're stuck in this car, car for hours. Like it's perfect. It's like, whoom. Now we have to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. I also really love the bit where like Grant is incapable of like fathoming that kids might be scared of the dark the bit where he comes back and he's like you know are the kids okay it's like why wouldn't they be okay because it's dark and, and kids get scared and he's like there's nothing to be scared about i know i'm not scared 
I know you're I mean, not scared. They're, they're 10 feet from like a Tyrannosaurus. There are a lot of reasons to be scared. Uh, they don't know that it can't see them. And he's like, why are they putting the lights on? These kids are stupid. Even when I, when I was a kid and, you know, he screams at Malcolm when he's running away and he's like, Ian, freeze. And I'm like, no, if I heard that, I'd probably still run. Like, of course he still runs. You know, That's terrifying. I love um, how, like, impotently he just, like, he's like, throw the flare, throw the flare, and he just, his second it's too late, he's like, ah. I also love when, when later he's on the the, the ground, and they're, like, uh, Ellie and, and Muldoon have shown up, he does this sort of, like, death rattle groan, like, oh, and then when they, they check he's there, then he says a one-liner, so it's like, were you just pretending to groan then, so that they come over and set you up for the one-liner, where he's like, remind me not to endorse the part, or whatever he says at that <laughs> Um, I do, yeah, I do that. Can we, can we chance moving him? Please chance it. Um, <laughs> but no, I kind of... his one-liners are incredible. The 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 the, the yeah, when he asks him like, is is he is he is he married? He's like married uh, occasionally, um, <laughs> and um, he's always looking for the the future mi- Miss uh, future ex future Mrs. Ex Malcolm. Miss Malcolm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Which does sound a little bit like he's asking if like how serious is your relationship? Just so we're clear here, he, like how comfortable feels, are you two? It feels like he's skeezy enough to say <laughs> to like uh, to to one of the, these kind of like people that he's courting. Like, how would you like to be the? Future ex Miss Malcolm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> like, <laughs> even when he's clearly fascinated with the technology of how they control the dinosaurs in this park, instead of in, and he does immediately engage in a big speech. He says, "What do you do? Look up all their skirts, you know." And it's impossible to take this guy remotely seriously. And then two seconds later, he's giving like uh, the life will find a way speech, which you are kind of compelled by to Jess's point, and you are kind of thinking like, "Yeah, you know, there there might be something to that." Yeah. His, his gigantic open shirt and his medallion kind of dangling beneath it as well. Apparently that was an ad lib from Jeff Goldblum when they found him. It's like, I want to open my shirt. I just wanted to be shirtless in this scene for some reason whatsoever, which I kind of adore. Um, and he, you saw that he... It's re- a great choice. Yeah, I, he, saw, I saw this film in Brooklyn once and everyone stood up and like cheered when, when he was shirtless, <laughs> like sprawled out. <laughs> um, in, in terms of casting, actually, it's worth noting, one of the things that I do actually really appreciate about Jurassic Park is the way in which Spielberg casts it. Because apparently you look at the the cast list and the potential cast members apparently he considered bringing back richard dreyfus to play alan grant which is a bit of a strange choice um in terms of treating it as a jaws sequel but one of the things that i admire in terms of casting the lead trio casting sam neill casting laura dern and casting jeff goldblum is that he didn't cast recognizable names now part of that was reportedly due to salaries uh because apparently he managed to get the film made for 56 million dollars a lot of people said it was 60 million dollars but apparently in, in interviews spielberg was very clear not one cent over 56 uh, but he picked like Laura Dern, who was mostly known for working with David Lynch, you know, on projects like, say, Wild at Heart. Um, and apparently it was Nicolas Cage who convinced her that she had to take the role in Jurassic Park, which is is great because apparently they're working together on Wild at Heart when they when she got the phone call. And Nicolas Cage was like, uh, you know, <clears throat> she's, she's saying, Nick, they want to put me on the phone with Steven Spielberg. They want me to talk about a dinosaur movie. And Nick's response was, you are doing that dinosaur movie. <laughs> No one can ever say no to a dinosaur movie. And she was you like, "You should always take career advice from <laughs> Nicolas Cage." I was like, "Really?" And he was like, "You're kidding! It's a dream of my life to do a movie with dinosaurs." <laughs> well, it's a dream of his life to own dinosaurs <laughs> as well. Yes, based on that Mongolian dinosaur skull. And I kind of just—I still love the image of Leonardo DiCaprio just driving up the price, uncut gem style, on that kind of like dinosaur skull for Nick Cage. But I, like, I like the Spielberg cast, you know. And you have Sam Neill, who was best known at the time for doing. 
like B movies like Dead Calm or kind of um, what was it, The Omen Three. You even have obviously um, Ian Malcolm played by Jeff Goldblum, who was best known for like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Fly, and that works because these are actors who are used to working with these sorts of special effects in these B-movie environments and used to taking very hokey, very serious, very kind of heightened kind of like concepts and just playing them relatively straight. And I think the movie doesn't get enough credit for its use of its three cast members. I don't think it would be as good a movie if it was Harrison Ford or Robert Redford or, you know, sort of Meg Ryan or whoever else they were considering for those roles. Jim Carrey. Definitely. It's it's such a careful thing. Like Jurassic Park is such a Venn diagram of if you showed the dinosaurs too much or if you did make Hammond too evil or, you know, it's so kind of fragile. The casting, I think, is stellar. And any one of them, if any one of them had been someone else, it could have kind of wrecked the effect. I mean, it's telling that you haven't had a sequel with all three. Like, you know, I mean, there are lots of problems with Jurassic Park sequels, but you could argue that, like, the fact that they've been unable to recreate that chemistry is a large part of it. And that I don't really care about any of the young people in the same way I care about these three. I don't even care about Malcolm when he's on his own in the Lost World as much as I care about these three. I certainly don't care about Grant. God bless his his soul and his child-hating soul. Uh, But I I don't care about him when he pops up in Jurassic Park 3 either. I really do feel for Wayne Knight. I really really quite like him um, in this. We got uh, Dodson here. Dodson. (laughs) Um, um, Hammond should have just paid him more. That's that's the obvious thing. Well, I don't... The... the, um, like it's, I love I I, I like like I was I, I was driving the other day, and I wasn't expecting the road that I was on to be flooded, <laughs> and then all of a sudden the car was just submerged in water, and I was like, sorry, excuse my French. Um, the the engine was starting to stop. And I was like, "Oh no! This is this is this is total Dennis." Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I, I yeah, I, 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 like it. It it could have been a lot worse as Dennis showed. But, I mean, um, and when you bring up Dennis, it's kind of interesting because one of the interesting readings of the film that I've seen is that it is a feminist film, and that it's notable that like Dennis is attacked by the dinosaur in the car. In like it's very much kind of shot like a kind of a love scene would be to pick Titanic for example, where he's in a car and there's a woman in the car, the fogged windows, the fogged light windows. Up, and then all of a sudden, boom, the car starts rocking. But it's it's not what you think. I kind of like it. Apparently, it's it's one of the interesting reasons the film is that it is perhaps a subversive kind of feminist movie in that sense. One thing I'd mention about that scene is the the sound effects. Like there is a comedy slip slide whistle when when Nedry falls down the hill. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I watched the thing this morning and the, the sound effects are fascinating because they combine like baby elephants and lion roars and stuff for the dinosaurs. But then there's so much more like there's a, a high pitched little like uh, thing when Nedry laughs when the can opens up that he actually added like a and then then between the two Nedry then laughs as well. And it's really funny because he's got this high pitched squeak when he opens up like the delight. And there's so many little details like that that that, that really yeah pushed over the line. And, and yeah. I love sorry, the, Andrew, you were going to say something. No, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, that I, I, I just love the thought as well when all the systems are breaking down, and he's like, "Go, go, go, find Nedry and uh, check, check the check, vending machines." Check the vending machines. I love the thought of him coming back, and he's like, "Yeah, the vending machines are also down." <laughs> um, but like, I think that's another as well. 
that's another good detail about like Hamid has flown them all to an island and then isn't giving them food. Like later, there's oh, yes. food melting, and Hammond's like, no, 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 you have to go use my vending machines and pay twenty five cents for some peanuts. Like, <laughs> just give them some food. Gosh, that's wealth hoarding, though. This is how it works. Like, and I do, I, I always find that interesting. Where he's like, check the vending machine. He is such like venom and anger towards Nedry, and it's like he is literally enabling you to do this. Not only is he enabling you to do this. He's doing the job of probably about eight people. So you're getting it for not only are you not paying him enough, you're saving on like Just seven imagine salaries. if Nedry had like He's fallen so in the angry. toilet. All of this might have happened and Nedry would have just been unconscious in the toilet. <laughs> did we, did, yeah, we, we want to see kind of like an after credit scene where it's like Nedry smoking a cigarette like in, 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 in the, the cars. Car. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With all his clothes off. <laughs> Lying next to the, what, what is it? A dil, Dilophosaurus. 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 Um, and while we're talking about Nedry, then Nedry is notable as one of only two characters who doesn't get to make the Spielberg face uh, in Jurassic Park. That kind of awestruck reaction that you get. The other one is the character of Ray Arnold, played by Samuel Jackson. And again, as I've gotten older, I found myself gravitating more and more towards Ray Arnold as the one character in this movie that I most relate to, because he's the one who's like, I'm going to smoke a cigarette. I'm going to deal with this crap. I probably have a mortgage to pay off back home. I don't have time to be like sucked up in the magistry and wonder of it all. I'm busy making announcements, telling everybody to get the hell off this island before it floods. I can, and like, I love the fact that it, it's Ray who like dies off screen. Like he, he doesn't even get a cool death sequence like Muldoon. He just wanders off. Everyone's like, hey, where's Ray gone? You should probably go check out where Ray yeah. was. And it's like, nope, his his arm is just dangling. Yeah. No, like, I mean, he, he wanders off and he's like, I'll have this place back up in three minutes. And again, to Jess's point, pay your employees more. If your whole place can be simultaneously turned off and then back on again by the same two employees, you really need a better system for like one or the other. Like, if either of those are gone, the whole thing falls apart. And he, he grabs a radio, doesn't even grab a gun. Muldoon has a locker full of guns, but like, oh, no, no need. Off you go. Well, no one's allowed to shoot because no one's allowed to shoot the dinosaurs because Hammond's priority is dinosaurs and food and like nothing else. There's, there's a little detail where when Muldoon does grab the shotgun, he takes one shell. Like, there's this lovely big shot where he like folds out the, the thing. It's for him. Exactly. Like an island. Like there's two of them and then he just tells it, run. I'm going to use my one shell to maybe kill this dinosaur. I mean, there's the moment later on where Grant has the shotgun and fires it off screen. But it's notable that no human kills a dinosaur in Jurassic Park. It's also notable that in the entire franchise, at least up until Jurassic World, I believe only one dinosaur is is killed by a human being on screen. And she's that's the velociraptor that's impaled on a spike by Jeff Goldblum's daughter, uh, by Ian Grant's daughter. Sorry, not Ian, Ian Malcolm's daughter. Yeah, I, I love how weird and dark like the Lost World gets in terms of just it's very much the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom of Jurassic Park movies. It's like- I remember as a kid seeing that and as a kid and you don't understand things like sequels and that's not necessarily always the same team. And I saw the Lost World and I was just put off the franchise for a very <laughs> long time. I was like, it just freaked me out so much and made me so uncomfortable and all the army stuff. And you don't quite get it, but you know something awful is happening and it just traumatized me. Not like this at all. It would not rewatch. Yeah, no, because I mean, I, I really admire the fact that it is so dark and weird. Like, because I mean, Alex mentioned the idea of like Spielberg working through some stuff. 
Like the lost world feels like he's working through some stuff. I've got no idea what that stuff is, but it's it feels like a nightmare. Like, yeah, because because it's like Jurassic Park and obviously Schindler's List were kind of shot back to back, and I think he was editing uh, Jurassic Park while he was shooting Schindler's List. I think there's this great story about, about him apparently listening to um, uh, John Williams' score on the way to like the Polish death camp recreant every morning and being like, oh, this is great. And then having to like get out of his car and be like, all right, I'm going to need a redder coat or something. And like how you go through that, those two competing films in that one year. And then he takes like two years off and he's like, now I'm going to make The Lost World and Amistad, you know, his slave. (laughs) 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 And it it feels like with those two, he didn't get quite the tonal balance right. No, yeah, (laughs) <laughs> like the lost world feels like kind of like halfway between Schindler's List and Jurassic it's, Park. It's when it's I exactly... saw actually when I saw Apocalypse Now, I was like getting my own Nam flashbacks <laughs> as to like this is how I felt as a child. This is what that film made me feel. It's um, it's your point, Darren, that like every you know Jurassic Park sequel is in itself this sort of like self fulfilling prophecy of like. No, we're going to go back to the island and we're going to make some money somehow and we're going to use, you know, bigger guns and it's going to be great. And then you're watching it and you're like, oh, no, this is awful. Why do why why are they doing this? And every but we're all still going to them. You know, they'll still be the, the biggest film. I know they're, they're making yet another one with Sam Neill and Jeff yeah, Goldblum. And, and they're Harder all back. Their- Dominion, I believe it's called. And there was a short film and there's an animated series on Netflix for kids. Um, it's a full fledged franchise now, much like Harry Potter will be. Yeah. It's Malcolm's lunchbox speech, except, yeah. you know, literally. Yeah. I love the idea that there were executives sitting there in the screenings of Jurassic Park going, that Malcolm guy has a point. Get the lunchbox people on this. Um, but um, very quickly, before we wrap up, actually, one thing I find interesting about Jurassic uh, Park is that it is very much a 90s movie. And that is very much, it's that character that you have of Ian Malcolm, who is obviously a cha- an expert in chaos theory. And I love the characters don't know what chaos is, just even as a concept. It's like, Ellie, are you familiar with chaos? It's like, no, no, I'm not. Please explain what chaos is to me. Um, But uh, very much kind of like a 90s thing that you see a lot of in terms of, say, the Quentin Tarantino movies, the Soderbergh movies, the Altman movies of the kind of era, which is this idea after the Cold War has ended, there are no more ordering principles. The world doesn't make sense anymore. Everything is random and arbitrary and violent. And the whole point of kind of like Jurassic Park is that no matter how carefully you construct a system, everything will come tumbling down because the world is a cruel and arbitrary place where nothing makes any sense whatsoever and there is no God. Um, And I kind of like that even in a family-friendly Spielberg movie about how great it is to become a father and the difference between being a genetic donor who creates a life and being an actual father um, is a, a big, very personal journey that you have to take in a very heartfelt, very heartwarming journey. That you also have underneath it this idea that, well, nothing you build is going to last. It's all going to break down. Um, Nothing you can do will impose order on the world. And I kind of find it fascinating that, like, as the Jurassic Park sequels have gone on, they become less about that. In that, like, you get to, like, Jurassic World or Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and all of a sudden it's revealed that, like, the character played by B.D. Wong in this movie was a corporate spy who's stealing information for a rival company that plans to use the velociraptors as weapons. I think there's a, it's a Jurassic World where you have Vincent D'Onofrio's character who's planning to use the velociraptors in Afghanistan. If only we had four of these boys in Tora Bora, boys, I think is an actual quote from the movie in question. And I kind of, it's interesting that you look at Jurassic Park and it's a snapshot of that era where it's all just, it is this, because uh, I, I think like people talk about chaos theory as an 80s fad. 
where it's like, oh, that's such chaos theory was such a thing in 80s and 90s science. I kind of find it fascinating that Jurassic Park is that. I think, like, as well as that, the sort of increasing realization and collective shrugging at, you know, corporate malfeasance and the idea that we're all just in, increasingly indentured to decisions in companies that are millions and millions of miles away from here. And, and yet that will somehow affect our lives that, you know, a, a company, you know, um, what is it? The, the, the company that makes plastics, um, you know, the, the, a company that would essentially decide to make cookware in the 1950s using a particular Teflon. type of plastic. Yes. Um, and then, you know, the, some of that plastic is going to be in our lungs and our children's lungs for the next 60 years. And um, just our collective like, oh, that's too bad. You know, oh, can we, you know, prosecute that company for that? Well, actually, companies are like people when it comes to taxes, but not like people when it comes to like blaming them for crimes. Um, and the, the, that that is all wrapped into a, a film it does make it an incredible film and it, for it to come from a major multi-million dollar studio and a filmmaker who is if nothing else like very brilliant about layering in certain ideas like that while having all that fatherhood stuff and and while having something that feels so fun and light and in parts and so scary like the the kitchen sequence and others yet still have that all the way through it and that's going back to why i think it's it is kind of crucial that hammond survives because of course hammond survives he's always going to survive it's it's Nedry who's going to end up buried in mud. It's, you know, the, the lawyer yeah. who's eaten on exactly. It's Ray who's, who is going to die off screen. Um, so for all those points, I think, yeah, it's it's a very important artifact from the 90s, from that time of like, okay. And now the next 20 years, we're increasingly at the mercy of company decisions. Yeah, I mean, why does he want everyone, all of the dinosaurs to imprint on him? Probably in the back <laughs> of his head because he knew that this was possible. And he was like, if they saw me as a baby... And they, they won't kill daddy. Maybe they won't kill me. Yeah. He's not too surprised or devastated at all of this kind of happening around him. Even though his grandchildren are in the middle of it, he's just kind of, he's not even thinking about it and thinking about the impacts of it. Exactly the same as he is when the worker dies at the start. He's thinking, how can I get past this? How do I keep going forward? How do I keep moving past this? But like those dinosaurs, we do this. We imprint on billionaires. People will you know, defend Jeff Bezos down to the ground because there's that belief of maybe that will be me. And I just think it's fascinating for a film that, you know, was made nearly 30 years ago to still be so culturally relevant and not feel like it's of its time in a, in the way that a lot of kind of like, you know, 80s, 90s things feel is incredible. Uh, it is worth noting, actually, that I think Tom Brahan's point out that like, the big films of 1993 had a recurring motif of evil rich people trying to play God. So he singles out, say, John Gresham's adaptation of The Firm and Pelican Brief, which is about shadowy conspiracy of financial interests. The Fugitive uh, reframed the mythology of the show so that it was he was framed from murder by us, an unscrupulous pharmaceutical company. And my personal favourite, in 1993, in Indecent Proposal, Horny billionaire Robert Redford borrows a ha throws a happy couple into turmoil by offering Woody Harrelson a million dollars to rent Demi Moore for a night. So I like the idea that like in 1993 you had this simmering sense of, yeah, maybe capitalism isn't the ideology that we thought it was when we were rooting for it during the Cold War. Maybe there's something going on underneath the surface there. And the fact that it's also random and like weirdly specific as well. It's like capitalism does the craziest thing to you and you just, people won't believe it. Like you'll point out things. Like I've had conversations with people where you, you talk about SeaWorld and people are like, that's impossible. 
That, we wouldn't let that happen. I'm going to go see Jurassic World Dominion. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. fantastic. As a society, we'd never let that, let that pass. Yeah, they fixed the Jurassic Park roller coaster again, so, like, let's all go on that. Have <laughs> yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, oh, and, and Andrew might appreciate this, actually. Um, another Robocop connection. Oh, I, I, always, I wonder what this is going to be. Oh. <laughs> Why do you not know this? No, no, tell me. Um, Spielberg hired Phil Tippett, who was the stop motion artist who'd animated Ed 209. Um, to do oh the, wow! Yeah, he was. The, I, I I noticed kind of like some stuff felt um, uh, stop motiony. Like like there's there 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 there's moments where it's act where it's almost kind there's of a, a couple Harry of shots where they did it. And yeah. it, it's funny because again, I watched that special effects documentary, which I'd recommend on the the Blu-ray about how they did it. But they because they were so consistently on, you know, using stop motion that that really did inform the CGI they did do. But even down to like, they created these computer models of dinosaurs that where you move the arm, that's the computer one would be mapped to it and everything. So ways of doing it that like the modern guys wouldn't even do because you can do a few little clicks on a, a computer, but like a really like stop motionly approach then to the, the CGI, which again, I think goes into it and why there's, there's stop motion effects. And of course, Phil Tippett, who is interviewed, and he seems like a very grumpy man. <laughs> got the fam- he got the famous line where he was being shown, like, "Oh yeah, look at the CGI. We can do a few clicks." And it's like, "Oh, Spielberg's like, guess you're out of the job." And he's like, "Don't you mean extinct?" And Spielberg again, being maybe a bit dodgy, but it's like, "I'm going to put that in the film and give it to the million." That's million hilarious. Like, <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> but um, that's what's so sad about CGI. It's like CGI is incredible, and it's such a great thing. But like. It doesn't mean you just have to do that. It doesn't mean that we have to forget everything else that exists. Like the scene that I love the most in this, I think, is the the kitchen because that technically would be so challenging. Everything is reflective. How do you like? How do you a keep the dinosaurs feeling like they have weight and look right and the lighting's right and also not like where is the camera? Where is the like? It's incredible. And they feel like they're actually there, which you but just I, you don't get in modern. And I think CGI. knowing to like set it in a kitchen rather than a jungle or somewhere where we don't have any reference to, like the idea of bringing all this together into something where you're like, oh, that's a ladle, like I have in my kitchen. Like it's so clever to like immediately bring that home, literally home to to everyone. Especially for and for it to be the kids in that moment as well, you feel so vulnerable, and it's like a home invasion. It's like they're everywhere. That's I think what was so creepy to me about Lost Worlds is it's like they're not meant to be there. Yeah, get off their island. Yeah, like The Shining, um, one of the Velociraptors is left in the pantry. To eat all of the rest of the leftover food, but I'm convinced <laughs> that is a shining reference. No, it like, is. I'm, like Spielberg, like there's a. He's on already player one. Yeah, he's already player yeah. one, right? Ready Player <laughs> One has like a shining level, which is like the, like again, late capitalism. If you want late capitalism in a nutshell, it's not just that Ready Player One exists; it's that Ready Player One exists, and Sp- Steven Spielberg directs a shining video game level within it. You know, uh, he had Fay Ray on set for the T-Rex um, bit where it was going through to while the little girl was screaming and was literally like, oh, you, you know, you're the most famous screamer from the King Kong films in the 1930s. Like, like please judge this child's, you know, version. Of it. Like, <laughs> um, incredible. All right. Um, in terms of, of just kind of other stuff, it's worth noting that they, because they used models, apparently, and we mentioned that the hurricane hit the set on the last day of filming. And I think Spielberg actually used footage of the guy at the docks on the phone talking to Nedry. That was actually shot during the hurricane as well. But apparently the physical prop that they used for the T-Rex would absorb water. 
And so it would occasionally swell and judder and freak the hell out of everybody on set because the t- giant animatronic T-Rex was moving without anybody knowing why or what was causing it. Um, all right. Is there anything else we're talking about? Anything that we haven't discussed already with Jurassic Park? Anything we want to bring up? Yeah, just one of those little details I always like. Apparently in the scene with the kids in the car, like you're just saying with the T-Rex, it wasn't meant to break that glass. That was supposed to be safety glass and it broke and the kids are genuinely freaking out because they're like oh my god this broken glass and they left that take they were like oh well it's good <laughs> well, glad to see spielberg has learned so much since the twilight zone <laughs> um, yeah. well it's worth noting that joseph mazello apparently had auditioned for a role in hook and was told that he was too young he didn't fit the cast so apparently spielberg said tell you what i promise you i will put you in a blockbuster next summer and apparently yeah so that is the reason why the kids ages are reversed from the book because he wanted to cast mazello as the younger kid as soon as you're that cool eight-year-old, you can <laughs> you can be in my cool dinosaur movie. Um, the kids kind of look like um, you know the two of them. Like they kind of mirror Ellie and 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 Alan, like in terms of clothes and stuff, like the blue denim shirts. And there are a lot yeah. of little things like that that are very clever. And again, you only notice when you've watched it like ninety times. One but yeah. One thing I guess in the movie that I feel anyway doesn't doesn't age very well, but but ages it very well. Um, is the is 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 her saying? Um, I'm not a nerd. I'm a hacker. And it's like that's going to get paid uh, paid off later on. Um, like we're also we're, Nedry's we, hilarious filing system of just like click <laughs> clicking through the little virtual buildings and yeah. Uh, <laughs> we like have we to make this visual. is a '90s movie. Yeah, and it's like. Are you in the mainframe yet? <laughs> Can you do some code? Oh, one one thing I did want to um, mention actually is the reason that like, I think this is so different to Jaws as well is that we have sympathy for the animals in a way that the shark is such a kind of monolith and it's so just impending and the forward moving, there's no escape from it. But the bit with the triceratops really grounds you in the fact that like these are animals that are being put in a situation and in a position that they shouldn't be and that isn't good for anybody including them and even or the the herd animals whatever they are that that the triceratops comes and eats it's like this isn't fair to them this is not fair to them either it's confusing as well for the dinosaurs because i'm convinced to to the to the kind of parenthood thing it's all about the dinosaurs trying to make their way back to their dad like they're, 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 they they probably feel that that he's been imprisoned away and that like he he would he would he would love to be here with us in the park but he's forced to work all the time and let's go let's go see him it's I like mean, a queen joke. bee it's off somewhere and they're like where is she <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i do think there's a bit of that like with alan grant like at the start literally just focusing on the past and dinosaur bones and then at the end like no 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 there's more to life like focus on the future don't just like yeah. dig up the past and everything like well, that what are you gonna do I now, also, that like, you're, now that you're not a paleontologist and it's like I don't think you understand, Timmy, how well this theme park's going down. I think my career is just fine. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. um, there was actually, to, to Jess's point there, there was a, I like there was a bit where um, Ellie says, oh, yeah, you know, there's poisonous plants that you guys have just arranged outside. <laughs> like, it's so, it's such a clever little observation that she spots, like, no, you guys put them outside because they're pretty, but they're poisonous. And, and. Hammond is just completely kind of like, oh, no, no, put those outside. It'll be fine. Well, Kids, just stay away from them. Well, again, this is this one of the interesting things in terms of like the movie's chaos theory, because it's never actually explained why the Triceratops is sick, because Ellie doesn't find the seeds in the dome. Um, in the novel, and implicitly in a deleted scene from the film, 
You'll notice when she picks up the um the berries, she picks them up off the ground. They're piles of stones. And apparently Triceratops eats stones to help the digestive system kind of process in order to like churn um, the, the grass that they eat. And what was happening in the book was that the berries were dropping and splattering on the stones and the Triceratops were eating the stones. And that was why it was happening only once every six weeks. But it's never explained in the film, which I quite like. It's very Crichton to go into a long <laughs> yeah, you know, unnecessary. about the Triceratops digestive system and then I love that if you've read The Martian it's very similar but like oh, yeah. again like what these what a film like this it's like it's it's about the enthusiasm and the yeah. passion you're always drawn to someone who's really really nerdy about something it's like what what is it about this that that person loves so much yeah um, no but, uh, I, but more to more to the point I think that kind of like uh, Jess is making there though I like I like that because the film is about chaos it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to explain why the Triceratops is sick. Yeah. Like you, all that matters is the point that Alex made, which is that like this stuff is not meant to be there. And the Triceratops being sick tells you that there's something somebody somewhere hasn't thought about that's causing this. And to Jess's point about like the dinosaurs having like innocence and the film like embracing them. What I think is kind of interesting is that they do change the end of the book. Um, Alex, do you remember what happens to the island at the end of the book, Jurassic Park? It's like firebombed, isn't it? Like, yes. Um, it, by the Costa Rican military or something yes, ridiculous. Yes, it is firebombed by the Costa Rican military. And obviously that's why in the sequel that they have to go to the other island. Whereas here it's just like... <laughs> the other one's firebombed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the end of Apocalypse Now or the beginning of Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Uh, whereas kind of like here it's just like, oh, they'll maybe they'll go into a coma and die. But again, like that's, that's the thing that ties back to fatherhood because the entire point is you have Hammond resurrecting this dead creature and these clones and these children he wants to imprint on. And you have Grant instead choosing to go forward. That's why you have the closing shot of the birds. Because the whole point that Grant makes is that dinosaurs evolved. They became birds. They became yeah. something else and didn't stay what they were. So the idea is that the men in Jurassic Park, ideally, or Grant in particular, evolves. He's no longer a dinosaur. He's now a bird at the end of it, which is not particularly subtle as, as imagery goes, but I, I do quite like no, it. No, it's great. And like that whole, even the scene beforehand where instead of, as you say, them doing something like shooting a raptor, you know, a T-Rex somehow that they don't notice manages to make it into the room and eat the raptor. And and the implication is like, no, there are all these dinosaurs are going to do what they maybe did, you know, 65 million years ago. They're going to eat each other and they're going to, you know, evolve. And and you're just bystanders in all of this, um, Alex, this new chaos. You mean they're going to do what they did when dinosaurs ruled the earth? Yeah. yeah. As the little kind of By that stage, I'm just so happy when, you know, I'm just like, oh, it's such a film. I don't mind the that, that silly yeah. effect. I love it. I love it so much. Uh, all right. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already with regards to Jurassic Park? Anything jumping out at people? Any characters? Any moments? Any themes? I never really thought before about how um, n nobody does kill any of the dinosaurs. Like, I feel like, you know, when you're watching a horror film and there's a dog and you're always like, that dog's not making it to the end. It is kind of fascinating that they do all make it out. I mean, they kill each other, but like, yeah, it is interesting. I think Spielberg had a lot of um, care for these animals in a way that he didn't for the shark and jaws. And he thought about them. You can just tell something metaphorically different is, go is at play. Yeah. And again, it's it's interesting that in The Lost World, one of the first things that the dinosaur does, that the T-Rex does when it lands in San Diego is eat the dog. Um, yeah. Because you get that wonderful shot of the dog house with the chain kind of dripping out the corner of its mouth as well. No, so even to compare it to Jess's point there about like the parallels with Jaws, like in Jaws, you know, children are eaten and like threatened and it's it's horrible. And it, it's not just like eaten and then done. Whereas is, you know, I said before, like Spielberg apparently had a, a son in the late 1980s and, and it did apparently change, you know, he 
um, some of his perspective on certain films and made films like Always and Hook. But I, I think a direct comparison between Jurassic Park and The Lost World, Lost World opens with a, a child being mauled, you know, off screen and you don't really know what happens. But it's it's a very different feeling to this where the, the children are in peril, but the adults are protecting them and they're collective and it's fatherhood and it's just so much, you know, warmer or something. Even when they're in danger, you, yeah. you, you, you they're know. cuddling they're in a tree. the magic yeah. of dinosaurs. Yeah. Like yeah. they're having that moment about the cows and these, some of them are nice dinosaurs. And I always find that like um, exchange so annoying because it's like, Hammond, why did you not just make herbivores? <laughs> mm. Like, what were you thinking? How many people are going to like want to peer in over your, you know, like, raptor event. enclosure, you know, that that also looks like wildly unethical in terms of keeping like six of them in there or whatever it was. Like, well, like predators hide as well. And they're they singular. Do. And, you know, like, and they don't, don't like it. being watched either. No, like I, 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 they'll I was, attack. I was in um, I was I was in South Africa and we went kind of, you know, to 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 one of the kind of game uh, reserves where you, where you or sorry maybe that's not the the the, the right term I want to get across that I wasn't killing them Andrew was there to hunt man the most dangerous game <laughs> but yeah, yeah we, one bullet and it was <laughs> yeah this we, is why Andrew's kind of heading to Isla Nublar as it's a new head of security <laughs> <laughs> but like if, you get if we to had see... four of these boys in Tora Bora <laughs> <laughs> you get to see practically all the animals except like you go up to the lions and then they're like yeah we're gonna have to uh, keep our distance from the lions and then at a certain point it's like it looks like they're getting kind of annoyed so <laughs> we we need to get out of here like right now they don't like being looked at and they yeah and and there was a leopard as well um there was like a leopard or maybe like two or three leopards in the whole entire thing but they like were pretty much impossible to ever see because they were just kind of like they didn't want to be seen you know and if you saw them it was already too late the the other two attack you from the side and again i I love again that's really good setup and foreshadowing where you have grant who actually knows the science explaining that to the kid at the start and you have muldoon the game hunter who has just no idea outside of shooting large animals how these things work. And he's like, clever girl. And then gets like munched alive. Um, by the way, fun, inverted commas, fact here. All of the Hasbro toys for the Jurassic Park range are male dinosaurs, inexplicably. Um, which is, yes. That's the demographic. You know? <laughs> That's the market. Um, to your point, Aaron, like it is interesting how they they recruit these experts, but it's completely for the wrong reasons. Ellie knows those plants are bad and she could have told them that had she been involved from an earlier point. Alan Grant knows what inherently the dangers are involved with the raptors. And had he been involved and had they ever had a conversation together, that might not ever have happened. But it just they didn't apply them in that way because it was just about how do we just enough do just enough that this can be kind of legal for a little while? No, I was going to say, like, I think that that the entire idea, it's exactly it, but it's, it's in Hammond's flea circus speech. And I like to, you know, close us out at the start of this, we were talking about how Richard Attenborough's accent slips. I know I'm making defenses for things that were probably genuine mistakes, but I always thought like that was very telling that this sort of like can't do English gentleman. And then when he's actually being honest about like, oh no, I'm, I'm a showman. I'm a con man. Like I, I might as well have just made this like fake little flea circus. His accent slips and he becomes Scottish again. And he specifically talks about coming down from Scotland 
and doing all this. I actually thought it was a lot about, you know, him as this like dodgy circus manager in that scene. And of, and of course he doesn't want to like have experts in because they would make it, you know, they, they all collectively say no. And he famously says the only one who, who's on my side is the blood sucking. And, and I love that his response is thank you. <laughs> he's, he's also very transparently bribing the expert witnesses. He's like, he's, they're already on his payroll. And it's like, you're the people who are going to attest to this because, like, there's no conflict of interest they there. Have no choice. And, yeah. and no, that's actually to... a good point, Andrew, because one of the things I forgot to mention is, like, our introduction to Hammond's character is he comes in a helicopter and completely destroys the dig and they're all running around like, oh, my God, and covering Covers stuff, up the dinosaurs again. He doesn't again. care because it's his... He owns it anyway, and it's just his complete disrespect for any of these things. It's just... It's mine. It doesn't, you know. And, and, he, and he opens their champagne as well. Um, yeah, to, to, but we were saving give, that. To give Grant some, you know, credence there, if, you know, his dig has been fully funded for another four years, but then if you go and it's revealed that there is no need for a dig anymore because they're real, you might be like, you know what? I'm going to hold off on the, the old, you know, certification of that. Yeah, I'm happy to keep my career as a paleontologist but do, do you think that like grant is that canny or do you think that hammond has already done the math in his head and he's like i could from i could promise to pay five years because when he comes back he's not going to be doing digging anymore he'll either be eaten or he'll have signed off on this park <laughs> yeah problem solved <laughs> one of those two things the, with the salary i'm paying nedry i could finance this dig for five years so. <laughs> um all right then is there anything else you want to talk about anything that we haven't discussed or anything jumping out at people I think we've mentioned the music and how wonderful it is. Just to give that a plug away, like that is incredible soundtrack. Yeah. Really, really out of the park soundtrack by John Williams. I like that out of the park. I do appreciate it. Um, and again, like it's one of the things. Have you listened to it slowed down? Uh, something like a thousand percent, or like like the level of. I'd like, imagine it sounds like all that music slowed down to a thousand percent, just like chords and like (laughs) but i'll give that a go i'll give that a go absolutely all right it's one of those things that really gives a film legs for a long time sound is something that you don't pay that much attention to or consciously you don't pay that much attention to but when you're watching say a b movie or a horror film or whatever and it has an awful soundtrack it's something that you notice very quickly and it's grating and you're like that was rubbish Whereas the same film with a slightly better soundtrack, you'll be like, wow, that was incredible. And it's just one of those kind of invisible things that adds to an experience so much. And Williams is so great for that. Yeah. And particularly when, it's as we point out, there's so few actual dinosaurs in here. When so much of the movie is reaction shots or people reacting to dinosaurs or the movie telling you that people are reacting to dinosaurs, the music is really, really helpful in communicating that sense of grandeur and epic scale. Um, it's, it's stunning. It's beautiful. You feel like you've seen them. It's like the Bambi thing. You feel like you see Bambi's mother shot, but you don't. Mm. And it's because of the atmosphere and it's because of the reaction and you feel you feel it. So you think you've seen it. All right, then. I think that about wraps it up, um, unless there's anything else we talk about. Um um, yeah, did, um, Ar- Arnold does smoke that cigarette butt. Yes, inappropriate <laughs> cigarette. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I love the, he I love he the needs to up. ash that at that point, like put it out, have a new one. 
<laughs> like, I don't think his salary. I think with his salary, he's lucky to afford that one cigarette's going to do him for the week. He's not even inhaling. He's just letting it like drape around his face and undo his tie. He, he's only smoking because he's allowed to do it at work. Yeah. <laughs> like he doesn't know how it how it works. And yeah. that's the, that's the health and safety kind of like. There's there's another example of Hammond's health and safety kind of uh, it's, process. It's sad, but it's probably how the Raptors found him. You know, like smelling the tobacco in the air, <laughs> immediately going to eat him. Uh, They're like, I mean, what's this magic? This didn't exist when we were alive. <laughs> yeah. Love the idea of nicotine ad- adapted rift. And again, in Crichton's novel, there's this whole big sequence, because of course there is, where he thinks he can outwit the raptors by running down a set of stairs, only for the raptors to jump down in front of him. And he's like, damn, this backfired. Um, and I kind of thought that it takes several pages of kind of Crichton's prose to kind of get there. Um, all right. The- <laughs> I kind of, of like- <laughs> I did not see that coming. Um, oh, fooey. All right. And they also apparently they um they had a second prop for his leg. Um, so you'll notice that like uh, remember the sequence where Ellie um is kind of Ellie finds him and then she runs out and she's kind of limping afterwards and she's like it's never really explained why she's limping. There's a shot of the the flashlight dangled up in her leg, but it's never really explained why she's limping. Apparently, she originally tripped over his mangled leg, his separated leg, um and apparently that was why she ended up limping, but that was deemed too graphic, so it was cut from the film. Um, it's and it feels like uh, Spielberg or the editor might have been be very uncharitable about Ellie's scenes because, like, the stuff with the with the animate Triceratops um, doesn't gosh, go anywhere uh, either. Doesn't go anywhere caught. either, and yeah, we just yeah. leave her there, and she makes her own way back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that she's not even meta because there are several points in the movie where Ellie seems to be like in imminent danger, but she just kind of shows up at the end. It's like, oh, I was fine. I had my own adventure. Um, like the sequence where she outruns the velociraptors and she just comes up mm. the hill and Grant is like, she's like, run, run, run. And Grant is like, I'm, I'm going to just stand here if that's okay with you. And um, she was injured. Yeah. Like she's literally like limping away and she's still faster than them. Yeah. Um, Maybe they don't eat women. <laughs> girl power. That's girl code. It's a special place in hell for, for raptors who eat women. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that Hammond imprinted on them in his own value system as well. Like the Velociraptor is just sitting there conversing, going, I mean, I really think that they should have sent Hammond because, you know, he's a, and, and yeah. she's a, and, you know. <laughs> all right. Um, all right, then. So we're going to wrap up. Uh, but before we do what we ask is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners. It be something that you're enjoying at the moment, something related to this movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something you think listeners might enjoy. To give Jess and Alex a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Um, something related to this movie, Dream, Dream Gun do a read of, of, of this film that I, that I enjoyed. They haven't done much lately because they they generally kind of would 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 do it live in front of an audience which is a good way to do comedy and obviously you can't do it uh these days and um, but I I I tell the listeners to check that out another podcast um and um in terms of Hammond and um and Dennis's um drawing on uh, sorry Dennis's picture on his desk I'd recommend the again the um, American Prometheus, um, uh, the biography of Oppenheimer, um, which is which is good. But it but it'll take a while longer than, <laughs> than even this podcast. <laughs> Just to read. Um, yeah, yeah. All right then. And Jess, what would you recommend for listeners? So I've been reading Scarentood. It's an Irish comic by Nick Roach and Chris O'Halloran. And it's quite, it's very interesting. It's um this man, his kid brother went missing when they were scouts and he kind of crawled into under a stage and went missing. And there's all this kind of lore around that. 
and then it kind of starts to happen again and it's like what is going on and it's all very atmospheric and but it's funny and the, the characters are really interesting there's something kind of going on with the main character he's a father and his wife isn't around and you don't really know why and it re- really good um really interesting and the art is is gorgeous right. and alex what would you recommend for this um i recently watched um a really good film called best before death by the uh, filmmaker paul duan uh, who's dublin based and I didn't really know much about its subject, Bill Drummond, but it's it's a fascinating like intro to a lot of things like that. And in November just past, um, they there was a really good Blu-ray or DVD that um, Anti World released. So I would recommend that. It's like fifteen quid, and it's really definitely worth it um, for checking out because it's just really really fascinating subject. And then more related to Jurassic Park, <laughs> um, at the beginning of lockdown, I played a game that I bought years ago and then never got around to called i think it's called jurassic world evolution but essentially you're john hammond it's like you know sim city except with jurassic park and the reason i got back into it is because they did an expansion pack called return to jurassic park and believe it or not they like licensed the full soundtrack they got sam neill jeff goldblum and laura dern all to come back and voice characters so they're all like bickering and giving you advice about like don't put the raptor enclosure there that's too near the visitor center and I was just like in heaven, like this is incredible. Like, <laughs> and then you can like you can get into the tour and you can go around, and then things go wrong constantly. That is hurricanes. so weird. It's it's like I would strongly strongly recommend um, the Return to Jurassic Park version of that game because it's so much stupid fun and really was a fun lockdown treat because you just turn it on and you're like, today I'm going to make three T Rexes, and yeah, that's what you would do. <laughs> so yeah. Would strongly recommend. There, there, there is a version of SimCity that has a Godzilla kind of option. There's one where there's ones where you can press a button to cause disasters. It's so weird that the game is about building a city and that disasters happen anyway. But if you get bored of like <laughs> you know perfect urban planning, you can cause like a nuclear meltdown. There's something about us where we we want that. Like people put yeah. Sims in pools and take the stairs away, or put, yes. put them in a house with no windows. Like it's very strange uh, condemnation of the human psyche that we do this. Power is bad, and if Jurassic Park has taught us anything. It's that. <laughs> uh, and actually, sorry, yeah, I feel like we didn't actually give a shout out to Andrew's observation about how so many modern movies are theme parks, to quote Martin Scorsese. I do actually think that, yeah, you could read Jurassic Park in that sense, in that, like, absolutely. Yeah, you have so many movies about theme parks. But just to, to Alex's recommendation, he recommended uh, Best Before Death by Paul Dwan. It's worth noting that he has a second documentary about the KLF, which is What Time Is Death? Uh, about oh, yeah. German, which is also worth kind of seeking. I haven't seen that yet, but I imagine if this is anything <laughs> like that one, yeah. it's a, probably is amazing. Um, so definitely check it out. Both are very, very worth seeking out, and I'll hardly recommend. So, in terms of recommendations from myself, because Jurassic Park is a story about American monsters, I recently watched Robert Altman's Secret Honor, which is a one-man play about Richard Nixon, starring Philip Baker Hall. Uh, it is very, very worth the time. I had I didn't even know that it existed. He filmed it in 1984. Um, it's one actor, one set, delivering a monologue for 90 minutes. It is astounding. It's on Criterion as well, worth seeking out. And Oliver Philip Stone's... Baker Hall is great. Dude. Oh, he is. He's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and he it's gets great used be- a lot by Paul Thomas Anderson. He he does indeed. Well, again, that's the Robert Altman kind of genesis coming through there. I think where you kind of see the connection between them. And I think like Pauline Kael's review of Secret Honor was really scathing, where it's like, I don't think he's a good actor, but he gives a great performance, and it's like, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
It's like, it's not, it's like a backhanded insult is what it is. It's somehow like more insulting than just calling him a bad actor. It's like somehow he, life found a way. But yeah, so we recommend <laughs> that. Um, and Oliver Stone's uh, Nixon as well, actually, from the mid 90s, which is also a study of Nixon starring Anthony Hopkins, which I would argue is one of Stone's best films, perhaps his best film of the 90s, controversially. All right. No, I'd, I'd agree with that. That was like, even though they have silly scenes where they're all in the plane and then one of them's like, what's this Watergate thing? And then the plane like bumps up and down like this is going <laughs> to be an issue. Turbulence. <laughs> Yeah. It's almost very Oliver as, Stone. Yeah. Very Oliver Stone. Almost yeah. as if this presidency is about to experience some <gasps> turbulence. <laughs> Imagery. Um, I mean, there's a moment in Nixon where, again, Anthony Hopkins just wanders out into the protesters at the Lincoln Memorial and jams with the beatniks. And it's like, okay, I'm willing to go with this. Um, but yeah, I, th- I, I really love it. I think it's a fantastic film uh, and I really, really enjoyed it. All right, then. So if listeners are looking for a bit more Jess, a bit more Alex in their lives, where can they find you guys? What are you up to? So, Jess. I'm on Film in Dublin. I also have a podcast with my brother Luke. It's at Breakout Roll Pod, and we're on all the kind of major podcast sites. And yeah, that's me. And Alex, where can we find you? What are you up to? Um, we're trying to do more podcasts of my the podcast I run with Sean and Kleena um, called When Irish Eyes Are Watching, where we kind of watch Irish films, uh, or sorry, films about Ireland or films that have an Irish character and do a little bit of a slant on them um but our last one was on ronan which was a bit tenuous the irish connection but you know any excuse to watch ronan but um we're gonna do one of the sort of like really silly i think the um p.s i love you is next on the list so that should be fun oh wow that's a pretty good one i have to say um all right then you can finally find us uh on twitter on soundcloud on stitcher wherever good podcasts are found and sometimes we're not so good podcasts are found um We'll be back next week where the wonderful Aoife Martin will be joining us to discuss a film made by one of Spielberg's key influences and one of his old friends. That is A Clockwork Orange, uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick. And we're really, really looking forward to that. We'll be back next week. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye, guys. guys. Bye. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. No, that was good. Bye. Talking about Jurassic Park always fun. Cheers, guys. Cheers.